Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and we have with us Trainer Road and Cannondale's Amber Pierce. Good morning, everyone. Cannondale's, that means you're going to be on that fancy new scalpel, which is pretty exciting yes. for Cape yes. Epic. We have, our head, yeah, we have our head coach, Chad Timmerman. Hi, everybody. And we have, uh, well, actually, it's a special guest, but we also get to pair this with an announcement here. We have Orange Seal and Specialized Trainer, forgive me, Orange Seal and Specialized Alex Wild. What's up, Alex? Morning, guys. So you are going to be joining us, I, I, I'd say regularly, uh, not meaning every week, but you're going to be joining us on, a, on about a once a month basis uh, to, for the rest of the podcast because you just fit in so darn well. We're like, he's such a nerd like us. It's perfect, but he's really fast. So, <laughs> so we'll keep, we'll have him on. And so thanks for joining us, man. It's going to be fun to have you on more regularly. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're going to talk about racing at high elevation, learning to suffer, plenty of other stuff today. It's going to be a good podcast. A couple of things to take care of beforehand. Head over to trainerroad.com. One of the things that's on there that we don't talk about a whole lot, even if you are a subscriber to Trainer Road, you should definitely send your friends to this too, but we have a strength training calculator on there. It was actually like a, a side project. Um, but, uh, Amber can speak to this and Chad, but we have things called creative days here at trainer road where we actually, it's, it's only one day a month, but that one day a month, we're encouraged to spend our time working on something that's, that's a bit off the beaten path of what we usually work on. And this was one. So shout out to Dom, uh, one of our awesome designers, I believe. And I'm sure there are others involved in this. So please forgive me trainer road employees that I'm leaving out on this, but uh, this is one of their side projects that they built up. And there is actually a strength training calculator on there so that you can get what sort of benchmarks you should use for motivation, depending on the type of rider you are. It's not a strength training plan, but it will show you basically like for this sort of rider, we feel like this is sort of the bar of strength and it's entirely subjective based off of what we believe. Um, but we've tried to take a good approach with it. It's uh, Chad's certainly not taking stabs in the dark here. Those are very educated guesses. So mountains of anecdote. <laughs> That's it. So, uh, but yeah, you can check that out. You can build your own plan on there. If you're not a trainer road subscriber, go on there and build your own plan with plan builder and use it. Like, you know, when you're building up your, the Tesla that you want to buy or something like that, you can build it up and then you can see what your training would be like for the year. Uh, it's all cool stuff. So trainerroad.com, check it out. And then also, if you're watching right now, thumbs up on YouTube. We already, I, before we even started, we had the, the live chat was going in hot. So uh, thumbs up on YouTube and uh, we'll get kicked off with this thing. Uh, first things, probably first to mention here is the fact that, uh, so, and Pete might kick me for this one. So I apologize, Pete, but, uh, our, so we have our iOS app is being redesigned right now. Android will be coming thereafter. And, uh, we've mentioned this in passing before on the podcast, but it's now in a private beta. And our goal here is to expand the size of that private beta as time goes on until we make it like a you know public beta and or go to production. So exciting stuff and stay tuned to the trainer road forum for more information on that. Uh, it's, it's, and the whole design team and development team. There's too many people with hands on this project to mention everybody, but thank you everybody here at Trainer Road because that's been a, a long project and one that's really going to pay off because it's an awesome app. So those are the folks that we don't really, they aren't the public facing part of Trainer Road and we should give them more exposure for sure. So, because they're the ones that make it all work. Uh, okay, Chad, you have a quick announcement. Yeah, I just wanted to say a quick happy birthday to John, Johnny Peachel. Up in uh, BC, good friend of ours. We've talked about him before. They own the Powder Creek Lodge. And uh, that's it. I just wanted to wish him a happy birthday. So happy birthday, old man. I think he's actually younger <laughs> than I am. <laughs> Honey, you're so sweet. 
<laughs> happy birthday. It was yesterday, but year. happy birthday yeah. just the same. That's awesome. Uh, great people. And happy birthday to anybody else here. I thought about this the other day. I was like, man, like we should somehow get the birthdays of our podcast listeners. But then I thought you probably would think that would be super creepy for us to log your birthdays and everything else. So I don't blame you if you don't give it to us, but maybe we'll do that someday so we can shout out some birthdays on here. Uh, I want to take some time to talk about something that hopefully it's going to be my experience here and we can all drive around this, but uh, it actually reflects like a lot of questions that we've been getting lately. And a lot of those questions, because it's coming to the end of the season and a lot of folks have trained diligently through the season with held fast hope on their events happening. And then, you know, they just kind of fall like cards in front of them as they get closer and they're, get, they're canceled or delayed or canceled. And so a lot of people are wondering, what do I do with this fitness that I have? And uh, I actually kind of, I pulled an audible really early on in the season and I was like, I'm not going to just hope that events happen and I'm going to make it something I can control and I'm going to make my own silly event. So I've been actually this week, I've been doing a solo stage race, which is, I know it's ridiculous. All of you, by the way, all of you jokers on my Strava and Instagram have been asking me how I'm doing in GC and stuff. Um, but, (laughs) 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 but I've been doing a solo stage race and it's been a lot of fun. And actually Alex, you, you did this right with kind of like Cape Epic in the sense that you basically like set up what you felt like would be somewhat representative of what you would experience. How did you go about organizing that and figuring out what you wanted to do? Yeah. Um, originally we just had the idea of similar to you. We wanted to build up to something, right? Like we saw our races getting canceled. We were pretty sure like everything for the year was going to get canceled or moved. So, I mean, it's fun to use fitness. So we, we decided we'd give it a shot and we, Daniel and I, my training partner, want to do Cape Epic at some point, whether it's in the pros or amateurs after I retire, quote unquote. (laughs) Um, But so we set that up. Originally, it was going to be trying to like match exactly the elevation and the distance. But the area we were in, we were always getting more climbing. So we just tried to make sure we hit the distance profile. And so we just did eight days straight of stage racing with similar to what the Cape Epic would bring. So like we had the prologue and then we had the, like the second individual time trial that they had on the same day. I think it's the fourth or fifth stage and pretty much just, we were curious, like, would we survive Cape Epic? So we kind of <laughs> set up our own. <laughs> did you, how did you handle nutrition for that? Like, cause those are big, long days. Not all of my stages are really long like that. Yeah. I mean, especially in COVID times, we didn't really want to be stopping anywhere. So we did, um, we both were using the Usui Outlander two liter packs. So we had extra water there. Um, I was doing Morton drink mix or Mortan drink mix, the 320 in my bottles. Um, For days like that, like I'm not burning a lot of calories per hour necessarily, but anything like over three hours, I'm trying to get in 80 grams of carbs an hour just so I don't have to play catch up when I'm off the bike. Um, mix that with, I like the cliff blocks and the SIS gels just to get some, to kind of try to avoid palate fatigue, but mm-hmm. pretty much just holding enough water and trying to get in roughly a gel every 15 minutes or so, or the equivalent. Yeah, that's like the hard part about it is like the logistics <laughs> of that. I have like a, I have a 50 mile stage that's going to be on Friday and it's got just under 8,000 feet of climbing. So it's a pretty big day. And the majority, I think the average elevation is like 7,600 feet, something around there. So it's pretty high too. So I've, I'm like trying to plan that out. Cause I'm thinking I'm going to need two hydration packs for that day. I could be wrong, but 
So I'm trying to see if I can somehow drop a hydration pack like the day before, like drive up to an area and drop it and hopefully no bear eats it or something like that up in the mountains. <laughs> but hopefully that'll work. Um, I, I've, I've structured mine. So the first day I had a prologue. Uh, stage two, the next day is a short track that was yesterday. And I'm still coffee from that. Lots of uh, my, my voice is all messed up. And then uh, stage three is cross country Olympic. That's tonight. So that'll be like a 90 minute race. And then cross country marathon will be the 50 mile day. And then my last day is a hill climb TT. So, uh, it's like, uh, in my mind that I wish all XC stage races kind of followed this like format of like changing up the different types of racing that you do. I think it's a ton of fun because it's not unlike what you did, Amber, in the sense that you would have climbing days, you would have TT days, you'd have flat days, rolling, whatever else. Um, yeah. Stage races can be a definite mix for sure. Yeah. Rather than doing the same thing every day, or if you want to do the same thing every day, do that, you know, whatever it is, but, um, it's go, I, I hit PRs last night, which was awesome. Uh, like all time PRs. I think I, I did just under 450 Watts for two minutes, which was good. Um, and that was up at like, you know, high elevation. So I completely exploded myself and it was just a flat sack of human after that for the rest of the race. <laughs> but, uh, KOM. yeah. And I got the KOM. So, and that's kind of the fun thing with this, right? Like you'd, <laughs> set like, um, set some fun goals within the races to motivate you. And actually, and if you go to my Strava, you can see this or my Instagram, but the way that I did the short track cause racing short track by yourself is a TT unless you, you know, this just ends up being a TT and short track is never like that. So I had, uh, my son and my wife were up there with me and they, uh, Simon would blow a whistle, but that was kind of hard to hear, but he would blow a whistle. And Sarah told him, you can only blow it one to three times a lap. And every time he blew a whistle, I had to attack for 15 seconds. Uh, so what Sarah did though, to make sure that I heard it was she would send me an, a text every time that said attack. So it'd pop up on my Garmin to attack. And one time she made me attack three times within like the space of like one minute on a lap. So it was like 45 seconds out of that was just attacking. And it was so, so hard. Like, I was completely shelled. It was probably a slower way to race it because in between I was completely, you know, boxed, but it was a ton of fun. And it was a fun idea of maybe how you can involve your friends. And I guarantee your friends would really be into the concept of forcing you to attack at different times. So, yeah. I have a question. And I know you're only two stages into five, but do you think it's going to be pretty close? Like it's going to come down to that final time trial? <laughs> this guy <laughs> yeah yeah just saying, it's, it's, you're it's calling it a race and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean I'm, I, I'm i'm pretending i'm doing everything in my mind imaginary friends the whole thing imaginary enemies whatever needs to happen it's, it's awesome so, i applaud it yeah it's covid awesome. times so um if you're listening to this and you're hoping to get some sort of an event out of uh out of all the fitness that you have, then you can always just plan one and go for it. So whether it's a stage race or whether it's just a single race, whatever you want to do, come up with something fun and a fun way to make it hard to, um, I don't know if you live in the South or something like that, attack every time you see a church, you'll be attacking a lot, but, um, something like that, you know, um, uh, make something fun out of the, out of the experience and use your fitness. And I guarantee you're going to get some PRs. So I'm going to, at that, that cross country marathon one is going to be hard. And then the, the final day, the hill climb TT, it's a 12 mile climb, but I climb from about like 55, like 6,000 feet up to basically 11,000 feet. Uh, that's, that's going to be really, really hard. I'm going to be so wrecked after that, <laughs> but hopefully, um, is this, is this still on track to be really hot this weekend too? Yes, it is. It's supposed to be yeah, like, I is. think around a hundred degrees, right? Somewhere yeah. in there. 
Yeah. So rip me. Um, hopefully I don't, <laughs> hopefully I don't completely uh, ruin myself from this, but, um, anyways, uh, a good point to add there. Let's go into Brent's question. He says, I'm currently working through base phase of a high volume century plan. 230 to 251 watts in my first six weeks. Way to go, by the way. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, super impressive. Uh, that actually is really similar to the um, to the Successful Athletes podcast that we just recorded this past week, which you should totally listen to. Um, so that one was was a ton of fun with Brad Kondrasik, and he's an athlete that went from his FTP and his weight matched at 265, and now he's 365 for his FTP, and he's uh, down to, to below 230 pounds as well. So made a ton of changes. There's no, you know, riders hate him for this one easy trick. There's none of that. Like, it's just diligence, and it's him getting in the work, and he talks about how he does that. So everybody should listen to that. Link will be down in the description below, Successful his podcast. So Brent says, I can dedicate 20 hours a week to training. I'd also like to incorporate a couple of runs each week if it doesn't negatively affect my cycling performance too much. That's like, uh, there's a lot of cycling memes in all of this right here. He says, uh, what modifications to my plan would you recommend? So just to recap here, he's going through sweet spot base high volume and, or he went through the base phase of high volume and now he's going into, I guess the century plan here, but he can dedicate 20 hours per week. Also kind of wants to run. So what modifications would you recommend, Chad? <laughs> yeah, honestly, if I could just recommend one thing, I think it's an easy thing to overlook. And even in the planning meeting, we overlook this is to sleep more. So if, unless you're already getting nine hours at night and not too many of us are sleep more. And, and that might mean for a little while, just staying in bed longer. Sleep may not come just right out of the gate, but sleep more, even if it, uh, it Ideally, you can push yourself up to nine hours. I know some people, I think even Nate tries to shoot for 10. So they're, I mean, when the training load's high, they try to make sure, yep, there you go. Try to make sure that we're getting, you know, somewhere more, more toward nine to 10 hours than that seven to eight or six to seven that a lot of people usually, uh, that's all they can cram in there. But if you have the luxury of more time, dedicate some of it to more sleep. And, and a couple of tips in, uh, in the direction of doing so is, it, you don't just get into bed and expect to sleep an hour longer. That's not typically how it works. It's a transition. So go to bed a half hour earlier. You've probably heard all this advice before, but I'm going to offer, offer it one more time. Go to bed a half hour earlier, get used to that. Then go to about a half hour earlier, get used to that. If you can do just that, you've added one extra hour of sleep or at least rack time over the course of seven days. That's an extra night of sleep every week, just like that for that one small modification. And I promise you it will pay very big dividends and in, in line with all this, if you don't, if you haven't already done these things, make sure you improve your sleep hygiene. And a couple of the most obvious ways to do it are set a consistent bedtime and abide it. Uh, avoid Courtney you know, mentioned, avoid sorry. blue light sources. Sorry, Chad, but Kate Courtney mentioned that very detail as like one of yeah. the more um, big deal. influential parts of her sleep routine was the fact that doing it at the consistent time, like that, yep. like. Cause it's really, it's really uh, tempting for all of us to just say, well, if 10 hours is the goal or eight hours is the goal, but I went to bed at midnight and I usually mm. go to bed at, you know, 10, I'll just get up later. But that's really tricky that that isn't as good for you. Right? No, there are certain, I mean, circadian rhythms and cues that take place at particular times. And if you're trying to fly in the face of that on a, you know, pretty irregular basis or regular basis, that's, it's, it's not going to pan out the way you're hoping. Uh, avoid light sources, especially blue light sources. Everybody knows this and I try to do it a couple hours before bed. If you have the option, try to lower the lights. Uh, meditation goes a long way, man. Amaret's been meditating and she is, 
She, she has more deep, deep sleep in a night than I see in a week. Um, sauna time. If you're going to do sauna, if you're, if you're spending time doing heat training or you're simply, you know, the person who spends time in a sauna each night, that's a good way to kick off that temperature increase. And then the temperature drop that cues the sleep that we're looking for, the deep sleep, especially uh, a hot shower can ac accomplish the same thing. And then a cool bedroom, especially if you're a hot sleeper falling asleep while you're too hot. I, right now we've got a lot of smoke in the air and the temperature outside is, is sky high. And as much as I hate running the AC all night, that's what we've been doing and sleep's been good because of it. It hasn't been affected. Uh, but that temperature drop is a big deal. And then, uh, like I said, just make yourself stay in bed for a little while. It might not be sleep, but just stay in bed, just get used to it and force yourself to do it. Because if you give yourself the option of getting up, you know, Oh, I'm an hour early, but I'm not going to fall asleep again. You'll get up and you're never going to reestablish these patterns. Yeah. And of, I, I, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jonathan. I was just going to ask one tip on this, like, and ask for Amber and Alex uh, for your recommendations in this. When you're training and you're carrying a training load, like all of these things, like you're mentioning, Chad, it can be really difficult to go to sleep, especially if your workouts are later. Like whether it's because your legs just feel almost like that half asleep feeling where they're a bit tingly and uncomfortable because of the hard workouts or whether it's just because the workout was late and you're too revved up. How, what tricks have you put in place to be able to make yourself go to sleep on difficult nights when you're in the middle of either a race or a training block. Um, Amber, did, did you find anything that helped when you were going through your racing career? Oh, the consistency piece is huge. And I always found that there was like this bell curve of being able to fall asleep. So when I would get into training at first and, you know, just to, to some extent, sorry, my headset's talking to me. Um, <laughs> so at some point, like, a little bit of training would make it much easier to fall asleep. And then as the training ramped up or the intensity of racing ramped up, it would get much, much more difficult to fall asleep and to not stress out about it. Just go to bed at the usual time. You know, you don't need to lay there and stress about the fact that you can't sleep. Um, and just know that like, especially leading into a race, one bad night of sleep is not going to make or break anything. So, uh, taking the pressure off, I think is a big thing that helps. It's not easy to do, but, um, Usually if you have one bad night of sleep the next night, your body's going to be a little extra tired and it'll be a little bit easier. So it's, it's not something to like, really don't, don't put a ton of pressure on yourself about it. Cause that ends up being counterproductive. Mm. Is there anything that you found as well? Those are great tips, by the way, the pressure part is hard. Cause I always feel like mm -hmm. I need to go to sleep, but that only makes things worse. <laughs> yeah. um, Alex, have you found anything that helps you get to sleep after big training blocks or tough days? Um, I pretty consistently take cold showers before I go to bed. So it's the, it's the temperature drop. So just like a five minute cold shower before bed and I'm a hot sleeper. So like that piece for me is huge. Um, the consistency as well, especially when traveling, like when I traveled to Cyprus, like I woke up at three in the morning and I just laid in bed till seven. Cause it's like, I'm trying to get to go to bed at nine, wake up at seven. Like that was the routine. So it's like, the, the thing you want to do is wake up, right? You don't really want to lay there for four hours and that's definitely on the extreme end, but just like Chad said, it's not going to happen. Like if you're used to sleeping 12 to seven, you're not just going to be able to go to bed at nine and wake up at seven. So it's like kind of incrementally changing that. Um, and for doing this while traveling, I've also, you can do the same thing, like move it up half an hour to try to get on the time zone. Like if you're traveling from West coast to East coast, you can start moving your bedtime up half an hour as before you move and wake up at four if you have the ability. And then by the time you're on the East coast, you're actually already on that time. 
Yeah. You've probably done that a bunch, Amber, with bouncing back and forth between Europe and US and all that. So. Yeah, I tell you, well, one of the things that sucks about jet lag is it gets worse the older you get because the older you get, the more ingrained your circadian rhythms become. And then the more disruptive things like jet lag become. So it's not something that's ever going to get easier, but there are those small things that you can do to help. And I totally agree. I think this is one of those things that you want to focus on in terms of building a long-term habit, as opposed to trying to like make some major overhaul all of a sudden. So really, you know, Chad had a ton of great suggestions. Pick one that you think is going to be really, really doable. Like what's the easiest change, like the smallest and easiest change that you could make. And then try to do that for a couple of weeks and build it into your habit and your routine so that it becomes second nature. And it's not a decision that you're making. It's just an automatic behavior. And then try tweaking some, you know, the next small thing, but don't, you know, don't feel like you have to go over and completely overhaul your sleep routine. Just small changes at a time will be far more effective, right? Because if it's not something that you have to decide every day, it's more likely to be something that you'll do consistently. And as we always say, consistency is is really where it's at. Yeah. Uh, br- branching away from the sleep side of things and, and looking at his question through another lens, this, this is the question that I see a lot of the time when people say, well, I have 20 hours a week. So <laughs> let's say that for some reason, it's not useful to dedicate more time to sleep because that part's just locked down, right? So let's just assume that. Um, if this is the case, I think that it's always tricky because it's one of those situations where it's just because you can, doesn't mean you should. Like if I had 20 hours to train, uh, it, it doesn't mean that my body could, could necessarily tolerate or improve with 20 hours of training. Right, Chad? Like more isn't always, doesn't just make you faster. No, no, I, I've said it. Amber said it. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure all of us at one time or another have said something similar is it's just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> and, and, and now you've got all this time, but can your body actually handle that stress? And, and what that translates to is, does it actually have the adaptive means to do so? Because even, even world level athletes have adaptive limitations. They can only inflict so much stress and have the body respond to it favorably before they can inflict more stress. So you know, maybe you, you're operating on 10 hours of training time right now, and now you've got 20. Doesn't mean train for 10 more. Doesn't mean double your training volume, because I promise that's going to backfire. So ramp your volume up slowly. And if any part of this is including more intensity than you've had in the past, ramp it up really slowly. And, and, and slowly can mean over the course of a week, maybe you add an extra 30 minutes or uh, extra three intervals over the course of 30 minutes to your VO2 max workout. Maybe you start tacking on an hour here of, of easy riding, Maybe that Wednesday off the bike is now a Wednesday on the bike for an hour. But those small changes, they, they don't take too long for you to say, yes, I can or cannot handle this. I mean, all of them will probably pan out or, or you'll see where they're going to take you within a couple, three weeks time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like this is a good year to, to try that stuff too. Like with no racing on the calendar, it's like, I remember, you know, everything having to be perfect because my race is two weeks out. Like I don't want to blow myself up now, but it's like with no races on the calendar, it's the time to like, does VO2 work for me? Does, can I do a 12 hour week? Can I do a 13 hour week? You know, like, and then if, if you can't, then just give yourself that rest. It's like, there's nothing on the calendar to, to peak for anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. We have like a lot more flexibility than we've had in the past with, with that sort of stuff. So there are perks and silver linings to this whole thing. Um, <clears throat> that's for sure. The other part of it too, is like, so I, let's say my body could take 20 hours of training stress, right? I don't think my life would allow that. And I'm not talking like on a calendar schedule, but I mean the other stress that I have in my life as well, right? 
Um, and you don't have to have five kids and four dogs and chickens to be able to like say that you have a lot of stress or something. It's, uh, everybody has a certain dosage that's probably meet to their abilities to manage at this point, the, because we generally kind of hit a stasis around that. Like we kind of get as much stress as we can handle. And then we kind of float there and every once in a while it spikes above, sometimes it spikes below, but that's another thing to think of. Like, and a lot of this goes into thinking, well, I did it before. So why can't I do it now? And I'm sure Amber for you is probably a similar situation. It's like you used to be like, yeah, 20 hours a week, no problem. But now would it be harder with your job? I assume. Yeah, I think physically it wouldn't be a problem, but then there's the emotional, emotional and mental stress that go along with that. Um, and yeah, have, having a full-time job is a lot of mental, you know, focus that that's demanded in a way that's really different from what I used to do. Um, and off the bike stress, it's going to vary a lot. So it's something that you need to take into account. And if you're looking at, for example, you want to start building up maybe volume or intensity. So you're looking to make this kind of like ramp up in a way that Chad's describing your off the bike stress is probably going to vary a lot from week to week. And that's okay. Just, you know, so it's okay if you need to modify week to week or even perhaps day to day, it's totally fine. That's normal. That's life. We're all human beings. We're not robots. Just because you set a particular trajectory doesn't mean that you have to stick to it. And also doesn't mean that sticking to it is the best thing for you to do. So remember that even if you're making a smaller gain this week than you made last week, it's still a gain and focus more on the direction that you're going rather than the magnitude of the gains that you're making as an example. So let's say you need to adjust the rate of a TSS increase week to week. It, you know, just because you didn't have the same jump between last week and this week as you did between the previous week and last week, it's still a gain. You're still progressing in the right direction. So look at it more in terms of, are you moving in the direction of your goal and focus a little bit less on the magnitude of, of distance that you're tracking with each workout or each week. There's also like an element of this that when you train more, there's also more emotional stress. And we were, we were talking about this actually in the planning meeting about how, you know, when, when I go through like a really hard VO2 workout, I just put myself through an emotional war zone, right? Like <laughs> there's a lot going on inside of me during that time where I'm trying to get more out of myself and, but self versus self, self, one side of self is going, this is way too much and I can't handle it. And it's too much stress. And I'm saying, stay focused on the task. You can do this, pull yourself through it. It's exhausting. Um, it's, it's, it's not unlike, you know, argue, going through an argument with somebody and how stressful and, 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 and difficult everything feels thereafter. And it's the, it's the same thing. So you have to think of that too. There's like, yeah, I could physically handle 20 hours, but especially like Chad said, a key point earlier on that, that may have not been gathered here. If, if not just volume is increasing, but intensity is increasing as well. That means that the, the, the training is going to be more stressful on you. So as a result, like you have to think that it's not just that the training stress is ramping up, but as you do more intense training and pack more of it into a shorter period of time, your emotional stress increases dramatically. And that has a way of affecting other sides of our life as well. Yeah, so, it, that, that's stuff. an interesting way of looking at it. Like even if we artificially been off the life stress, off the bike stress, we'll, we'll set that aside for a second. And we're only looking at on the bike stress to your point. We talk a lot about sympathetic activation, um, in, in terms of the physicality of what we're doing, but there's also an emotional sympathetic activation going on, which is the emotions that are around 
that fight or flight, uh, you know, activating and, and marshalling all those resources to, to get through a, like a really, really hard, a really intense workout. That's very emotional, very emotional. And that's not something that we usually talk about, but it's something that we like to separate, right? Like, oh, there's the physical stress and the mental stress, but they are very much connected uh, because you really, you can't have one without the other. Mm-hmm. And it's also like, it's worth saying that when you can complete those workouts and it's within your within your bandwidth to be able to emotionally manage that and physically manage that, man, it feels great. And the reason a lot of the time that it feels so great and the reason that you should pat yourself on the back is because you did just go through something physically and very emotionally hard, you know? So that's why I think we, uh, one of the reasons why we get this emotional high is because we're able to go through that sort of internal conflict, but then resolve it. Right. And, and that feels incredible to us too. So it's, it's something to consider like that. And this is one of the reasons why I don't necessarily feel this envy for pro athletes that put in a massive amount of hours. And you're unique in that regard, Alex, that you have to balance these things. Um, well, I was going to say, I, I don't think it's necessary. Like I understand it. People have this like 20 hour a week. It's like the 400 watt FTP, right? Like it's like, it's on this pedestal of like, that's what the pros do. And it's like, not only just because you can doesn't mean you should, but you, I also want to make it clear. You don't need to train 20 hours a week to be successful by any means. Like I'm guilty of it too, but I think Nate mentioned this, like athletes love to broadcast their biggest week, their best power there, you know, Instagram's a highlight reel. So it's like everything on there is just people's like best experience where it's like my usual week is like 12 hours tops. And it's like, before I would extend the ride time to 20 hours, I would spend some time rolling. I would spend some extra time sleeping. You know, I'd spend some time in the boots. Like I would throw more recovery aspect in there and pack more intensity into those 12 hours and see if I could handle more workload before I was wanting to handle more hours. Actually, and that's a great point. And we'll kind of like in our doc, everybody will kind of bump running down just below on this because that's like separating training time versus time on the bike. Like a lot of athletes say when they come into trainer road and they're about to sign up, they'll sometimes I'll send our support team questions, which is totally cool. By the way, our support staff is awesome and ready to help with that. And a lot of the time, Chad or myself, somebody, we all like chime in as well and, and helping those support agents answer those questions. So, um, to be clear, the best spot to answer or ask your questions is trainerroadcom slash podcast. And we can get them through here. But when that happens, a frequent thing that we see is a person says, Hey, like, you know, I'm doing 20 hours a week and looks like your plan, like the highest plan is going to have me going for somewhere around like six to eight hours a week. So what do I do? Like, you know, I clearly, I can tolerate a whole lot more, but there's a key thing here and you have to separate just time on the bike versus training time. They're two totally different things, right? Chad, like, like you can't just treat them all as the same. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think with, with 20 extra hours, the assumption is that I'm training 12 hours and I've got eight more hours how am I going to spend those eight hours? I'm going to dedicate three of them to endurance. I'm going to dedicate two of them Mm -hmm. to muscular endurance and you get it all mapped out. And then you realize there's a lot of other components. There's a lot of other cogs in this machine. I've got, I, I, if you know, you're a multi-sport athlete, I mean, we're talking cycling here, but you gotta, you got travel time to the pool. If you, you, even a cyclist, you gotta get your kit together, get your shoes on, get your energy foods. Even if it's five or 10 minutes of setup, and then at the end of it, there's the other side of things. And then there's the post-workout shower, but the, all these things accumulate time and cut into those 20 hours really rapidly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's tough to manage. And, and, and remember that when you're just riding your bike, it doesn't mean that you're training and it doesn't mean that you can 
spend that same amount of time all with structured training, you know, structured training doesn't necessarily mean high intensity. It could mean low intensity, right? But the important thing to remember is that it's still structured rather than just pedaling as you feel. Uh, so, and that makes it usually a whole lot harder, um, to go yeah. through. So I think stress to one of the things that, that Chad's talking about here in term, in addition to, you know, looking at this in terms of training stress and recovery, another important aspect to train is the transition from the training to the recovery and training mm-hmm. your, your flexibility in terms of your ability to switch from sympathetic to parasympathetic or back again is really, really helpful. So when you're done with your workout, being able to have a moment and dedicate time to transitioning out of one state to the other, resetting back into parasympathetic, that will help your system move more fluidly between the two states, which is a huge, first of all, it's a huge life benefit, but in terms of performance, it's also really, really helpful because in no, there are very few races where you're attacking every second of an, of an entire race. There's always going to be these little micro recovery sections, whether it's between two attacks and maybe it's only five or 10 seconds, or it's on a less technical downhill, or it's on a flat section where you can really just get into a rhythm and you don't have to be as on and you can maybe take a break and eat something. But the more that your body can switch between the parasympathetic sympathetic, and you can flip into parasympathetic, maybe even mid race and get a little bit more recovery than the person next to you, that's a huge, huge benefit. Mm, yeah. That's also like something I've noticed and it's been hard to manage with family a lot of the time because I'll come home from a workout or I'll get out of the garage and I've just done a hard workout. And I feel like I kind of need some time to like mm-hmm. rev down. Right. And, 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 but then, you know, Simon wants to play our little guy or, or, you know, I need to do chores or do something like that, or work is calling my name, something like that. That that's another big thing to keep in mind. Like, and like you kind of hinted at Chad, it all tacks on time to this training experience because mm-hmm. you know, revving down from that. Also, it, it's, pro- it's really important to not just think that you need to be a machine and be able to just training done, like turn the page. Now I can continue and move on to the next thing and be unaffected. Like it's hard. Um, then giving, giving yourself a little bit of time can be really helpful. I mean, that's honestly shower time is that's why it's really good to be able to plan some sort of a shower right after if you need privacy to be able to you know, get it, you're a busy mom and you have kids always asking for you. Maybe after training, you just always plan to have that shower. So then you can physically separate yourself from the other demands and give your time, yourself time to rev down something like that. But I think that is an important point because I feel the pressure all the time to just be like, well, I should just be a robot. Like this should be a part of my life. <laughs> I should be able to just separate it into chapters and carry through, but everything kind of does, you know, bleed together with that for sure. Um, Chad, I jumped out of line here. Do you want to, do you want to cover the running portion now and then we'll continue on? Sure. Yeah, actually let's, uh, save that for just after this next point. Um, just the training, training mix considerations. And Alex already mentioned that rather than dedicate more time, he'd rather see if he can dabble with in, in a little more intensity and see how that pans out. And that's, that's one of the two ways I see to go. The other would be to add on easy mileage. And I think that's the safer get. And if you want to occupy that time with time on the bike, it's probably the way to start. Even if you think you can handle more intensity, unless you're a savvy, experienced rider and you know that you're going to benefit from that added intensity and something that's holding you back is the fact that you don't quite have, you know, you're not quite being pushed to that limit, then, then it's probably safer for you to start just adding on a little bit of time in the form of easier mileage. And I just wanted to suggest a couple of ways to do that. Um, first and foremost, if you've got a lot of time, I love the long weekly ride. 
So if you can take a Sunday and go out and ride for four or five or six, or maybe two hours is a long ride for you, but something that is outside of your comfort zone, at least, at least, geez, 50, maybe, I don't, we don't need to put a number on it, but it has to put you in a point where this is unfamiliar territory and light, easy stuff. You don't have to, you don't have to bury yourself. You're just trying to go long and easy. Uh, that'd be my first suggestion. Even if it's on a biweekly basis or in every 10 day, if your schedule is super flexible, the other is two a days. I mean, just you have your high, high intensity in the morning, or maybe you have it in the evening, but whichever time is free, spend 30, 45, an hour doing that same thing. It doesn't have to be high intensity. In fact, it, it shouldn't even be really moderate intensity. It should be easy until you figure out how you can accommodate it, how your body responds to it. Um, the other is those fasted morning rides. I mean, that, that goes in line with the, with the two-a-days. And they, they convey a lot of benefit if you can make yourself get out of bed, get on the bike, do that easy work. And however you run the rest of your day nutritionally, knowing that you have a higher intensity work later or vice versa. But one of those two rides can be fast. It'd probably be better if it was the one where you're just coming out of bed. And then the, the, probably the easiest get is just extend that recovery at the end of any workout, tack on 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, set the intensity where it's, it's easily manageable. And then just see how you respond to what may amount to three or four or five extra hours by the end of the week. Hmm. Yeah. Um, th this is uh, probably the most measurable, or I should say like incremental way to be able to add stress upon stress, right? And to be able to add it in and measure and see. And it's important also to not just probably take judgments off of one workout, but to actually look like, okay, so I didn't just do my first morning ride and it went perfectly well. So then I'll tack on many more, but it's probably worth you working that in, you know, slowly but surely still. Um, cause it's super tempting to, once you do it first time and if it goes really well, to just sign on yeah. board and throw it all over the place, um, or vice versa too. If it goes really poorly, it's like, yeah, I'm never doing that again, but it's <laughs> something that you should definitely look into like, you know, um, figuring out how it works. Yeah. Um, yeah. If this is, if this is new territory to you, play it more cautiously than someone like Alex can, who's got a lot of experience to build on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I really like um, the incremental approach to that. And I think one of the things that should be taken into consideration here too, is just the time buffer. So as an example, you know, if you have an extra 20 hours in a week, maybe not scheduling every minute of that and allocating all of that to some aspect of training, whether it's on the bike training, off the bike training recovery, because there is something to be said for having a little bit of time buffer just for scheduling unexpected changes to your schedule. So for example, if I'm going to just, you know, take a different time scale, if I'm going to go do a five hour ride, I'm not scheduling that for five hours on the nose. I'm definitely scheduling and some buffer in case I flat, if I need to stop and refuel or fill up my bottles. Um, you just, you just never know what can happen on a ride. So I'm going to add in a little bit of time buffer there into my schedule. And then that way I'm not really stressed out on the bike if something happens. And the same thing goes for a week long schedule or a month long, long schedule. If you have the luxury of having a little bit of time buffer in there that can help you accommodate unexpected changes, that's a huge stress reliever. And again, relieving some off the bike stress will definitely be helpful for the quality of the training that you're actually doing during the week. So that might be another thing that could be a valuable use of your time is to just not schedule it. Yeah. We've mentioned this before, but consistency is largely the most impactful thing a person can have on their training. If you can train more consistently, like when we look at like those that are improving their FTP on an anonymous and very large scale, we see that consistency is the, is the overbearing, you know, uh, 
<laughs> overbearing consistency, if you will, amongst all of those people. And that it, it's, it's a, it's a real thing. And man, like I can fit in a high volume plan, a train road, high volume plan, according to the numbers every week, but I don't, I follow a mid volume plan because I know that consistency is important. And some weeks I might even not just have time for a low volume plan. And some weeks I'm going to have time for a high volume. But if I plan to give myself that cushion room, like you're talking about Amber, chances are my training won't be as derailed. Um, and, and I'd much rather be consistent and slightly below pushing my limits because by the end of the year, I think that's going to yield more benefit than by trying to push my limits constantly. And then, you know, crashing, so to speak, in terms of just not being able to train at all and having to take time off and going through that whole process. Um, maybe the, let's, uh, and I guess this is one point two, and then we'll get to the running part on the last, uh, last section here, but it's also totally what one person says for their job is going to be totally different for another person. There are some athletes like locally an, an athlete, Jose Cuevas, like he is so impressive to me that he, so he's a, he's a roofing contractor and he spends a lot of the day up on that roof, you know, bent over hammering, lifting things like doing really heavy work. And then he still shows up at the crit and he still spanks me, right? Like he's a really, really good athlete. And there, and while that may not be too much stress for him with his training and racing and everything else with his job, another person with a desk job that may just be too much stress for them to be able to handle. And because it's all relative to the individual and what's going on. So you do have to consider like the nature of your job, and if that nature will change over time as well, if you have a seasonal work, you're an accountant and Aprils are just nuts for you, right? Or something else like that. These are all things you have to take into account. Our lives aren't static, but they definitely above all are not comparable one to the other. It's, it's all, it all changes. Um, yeah. So one job might be easier than another running. Let's talk about that. Multi-sport athletes yeah. would, would laugh at this, but for us cyclists, anytime that we want to incorporate running, uh, Sean, one of our great copywriters actually just wrote a great and funny blog post on this. It was because we always were focused on how to make you faster, but he wrote this somewhat cheeky article. That's all about how to get slower as a cyclist. And it's actually really good because if you look at it and read it, there are key things that can be like, Oh no, I do that. And then hopefully we can stop doing it. Um, but within that, like one of the main things I feel like is that a lot of cyclists do is like, I'm just going to incorporate some running. I'm just going to do a couple of runs. And like every time it's like the undoing of everything that has to do with your legs and body. Right. Because yeah. <laughs> we're not exactly. It sounds, it sounds so innocuous. Like I'm just going to run a couple of times. Maybe I'm just going to do a couple 20 or 30 minute runs, but the abuse <laughs> that can inflict on a body that is not used to that form of stress can be a really big deal. And it can absolutely derail your cycling progress too. So Brent, the question is, do you have a run background? Cause if you do, you probably know, you know, what you can get away with initially and then, you know, see how that first week or two go. But if you don't, then you have to weave it in gently. And I would suggest starting with one. And I know to some, it probably sounds shameful to run for only 20 minutes, but keep it to 20 minutes. See how that goes, especially if you're on varied terrain. Cause if you're running downhill for any of that 20 minutes, it's going to take a far heavier toll than either uphill or flat running. Um, secondly, maybe it's just cross training. <clears throat> and if that's the case, there are a lot of ways that you can cross train. It doesn't necessarily have to be running. I do understand that it's the most accessible. It's the requires the least amount of equipment and it's, it's super easy to add running in terms of scheduling and whatnot, or, or maybe you're just aiming for variety. <clears throat> Excuse me. In both those cases though, I would still steer you back to strength training. If, <laughs> if it's not already part of your program and you have the time to dedicate to it, forget the running. Focus on being a better rider, 
and add in some strength training because that'll pay bigger dividends than the running will. And it impacts the, or it, it affects your joint health. And a lot of the things that you look for in running will be conveyed with the strength training added to the other benefits that come with strength training. Alex, I will partner. just say, oh, yeah, I, I, was gonna say go I would be absolutely destroyed if I ran for 20 minutes. Like that would destroy me for a month. <laughs> I was going to ask that Amber, exactly. which pro cyclists when you were going through with, with your pro career, was it common for pro cyclists to ever run? <laughs> only in the off season. And I don't, I, I didn't really know any cyclists who were particularly good runners. In fact, I mean, that's actually the way I got into cycling was when I stopped swimming, I still had this huge aerobic engine, but I'd had, you know, to, to, uh, I'm sorry, to Chad's point, I, I didn't have a run background. So I didn't have the form or the mechanics or any of those stabilizer muscles developed whatsoever. In fact, I wasn't used to doing anything that involved gravity. And then I started running, but I had a big enough aerobic engine that I, I just, I ran to the point of stressing that aerobic engine, not to the point of, <laughs> of where my skill set ended in terms of the mechanics of the running. And it was so bad that I was in grad school and my advisor got so tired of me complaining about feeling destroyed that he actually gave me his bike. I mean, it was that bad. He just said, for the love, please just have my bike. <laughs> Try something else. <laughs> this That's is clearly awesome. not working for you. <laughs> it Alex, can get ugly quick. I'll just say that. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. And, and like, to your point too, with like pacing, like when you go out running, it, it like, you'll probably be able to run faster than an average person at first too. Right. And which is not and, a good thing. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Don't, don't get carried away with the pats on the back with that one. Be like, Whoa, rein it in. Like when I'm thinking about triathlon in the future for us doing triathlon training, which actually, and once we get into like late October, I'm going to be this person here. I'm going to be working and running very slowly, but to the, with the intention that when a year wraps around and we actually start tri training in earnest, that at that point, hopefully I can run once a week and not be completely destroyed. Right. Um, so to kind of build up some sort of background on this, but, uh, it, you know, when I go out and run, it feels really good to run at like a low six minute pace because I'm used to like a certain amount of aerobic demand and intensity from cycling, but I'm forcing myself to run at 10 minute pace and like super slow and to only do a mile and to like just, you know, very slowly, gradually work that up. A Alex, your partner, Jen, she, she runs quite a lot and she does some crazy trail runs too, by the way. Um, did she ever bring you out for running? And then how do you manage that with your training? <laughs> oh man, a lot is an understatement. She's <laughs> yeah. currently training for a hundred K, which just blows my mind. I don't even know how to start running 63 miles. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, she gets me at my weakest. Uh, I take two weeks off the bike every year and she knows just a week into that, like I'm just recovered enough mentally that like I'm itching to do something, but I can't ride my bike yet. So she starts like, you want to run a 5k? You want to run with me today? And then I finally break down. So I do a 5k a year and every morning, the next morning I wake up a brick and she has to like push me out of bed to get started. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely something that for us cyclists temper that temptation to just become a runner all of a sudden. So, yeah, I, I don't know what you mean by comfortably running six minute pace. So I struggle with 10 minute pace full <laughs> gas. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Running is hard. Um, uh, let's go into James question. He says, I've just done a massive bike packing trip, 1000 miles and 70,000 feet of climbing long days in the saddle, racing up climbs against mates. His question what is the best way to recover so I can get back to hard structured training in the best way? I've only seen info before and during training camps and races and not after. 
And he mentions, he says, also training the energy systems like you do there at Trainer Road. And that's, he says that in quotes because that's what we say. We train energy systems. That's, that's our focus. Just training the energy systems works. As I didn't do a workout that was more than three hours, yet I managed to do 10-hour days with some big efforts thrown in. And obviously, he was able to make it all the way through, which is pretty impressive. So thanks for the help, guys. Absolutely, James. Uh, we're, we're intentional about that approach. Definitely not shooting in the dark. So there's science to back it up. Uh, so we probably have to operate on some assumptions here. Um, a bikepacking trip being a thousand miles and 70,000 feet of climbing. We'll assume that this is like a seven to 10 day block, whatever it was. Um, it also like, it seems like this is his first go at some sort of a big effort like this as well. Some sort of big block for those of us listening to this that haven't done a bikepacking trip like this, we should probably be thinking of that big training block we're planning or have done, or that stage race we're planning or have done something along those lines. So then we can find a point of relevance with this. Um, but probably like the, the, like first things first, you have to think about like the goal behind all of this. Um, so you've just done that huge amount of training for one reason or another. In this case, it sounds like it was just enjoyment. Um, but in some cases you'll be doing these sort of big blocks because you want to stress this particular energy system in a particular way for a specific period of time. And you may have something else coming back up. So suddenly urgency is brought into play and timing and scheduling and everything else. Um, so clearly the time, the met the answer after doing a big block like this is yeah, take time off, but it's more complicated than that. Right. Amber. It, it can be. Yeah. I mean, the focus needs to be on recovery and, recovery can be a lot of different things, right? It could be no writing. It could be easy writing. Um, I think in general, I think it's important to restrain yourself in some way so that your body and your mind can recover from this. And I think importantly, you want to feel really motivated and really eager to return by the time you get back to structured training. So that's kind of the, the big picture goal with this. Um, and I think another aspect of this, in addition to recovery, is recognizing that all of that work that you did in the previous week is going to, is, is, intended to trigger physiological adaptations. So you want to make sure that in this time that you're recovering, you're really focused on absorbing those adaptations, absorbing that stress in a really healthy and productive way. But you also probably learned a lot in terms of mental and emotional skills too. So what are the lessons that you learned? Are there some things that you learned uh, that you can really apply moving forward to grow yourself as an athlete and develop yourself as an athlete? So taking some time to kind of think about those things and let those things settle in with you is, it sounds a little woo-woo, but I think it's actually really important. Um, one way I was, when we were talking about this earlier, I was kind of thinking of this as a reverse taper. So if you think about tapering, it's a really, really individual experience. And what works for one person isn't necessarily going to work for another. So some people really have good luck and good outcomes with a ton of rest. Other people need to keep their legs going in some form or another, or they're going to feel really blocked up and flat. So I think a similar principle applies here. So it is very individual, but generally as general principles apply, as, as we always like to fall back on general principles. So the, the big general principle is the recovery, feeling motivated when you come back and really getting the sense that you're absorbing the, the work that you did, the lessons that you learned. Um, by the end of my career, for example, I could definitely take a full week off something like that. If I did a huge seven to 10 day block, I could take a week off the bike completely and come back firing, but that's me. And that's, I, you know, if I reflect back on the very beginning of my career, I'm not sure that that would necessarily have been the case, but again, that's something that's highly individual that you can experiment with. Um, 
I'll just share a quick story. The very first time I went over to Europe, we did this huge block of back-to-back stage races, and it was at a much higher level of intensity than anything I had ever encountered before. So it was, I learned a whole new level of suffering on that trip. (laughs) (laughs) And then I flew back to the States. And at the time I was living in California, but we had a big race block coming up on the East Coast in Philadelphia. We had the Philly Triple Crown, which included a crit in Lehigh. And then we were going to go to Philly to race uh, uh, the the Philly bike race. And I remember I was staying with a host family in Philadelphia leading into the Lehigh crit. And I was so smashed from this block in Europe. I was jet lagged. I was utterly destroyed. I didn't touch my bike for close to a week. And it was also about that time that I discovered the combination of Nutella and peanut butter. So I literally spent a week eating waffles with a mix of Nutella and peanut butter and laying on the couch. And that was it. And then I went and raced this. I think I did one shakeout ride before the Lehigh crit and I felt amazing. I mean, because I had discovered this whole new level of suffering, I remember the whole time being in that crit and just thinking, okay, when's this going to get hard? When's this going to get painful? When are we actually going to go? And I ended up doing a monster attack at the finish, um, leading. I I almost left the field, set up a teammate for the win. It was a super fun race and it felt like a breeze. And that was with virtually no riding the week before. That's me. That's not necessarily going to be the case for everybody. Uh, So the detraining process is going to vary for each person. But I think in the big picture, you can kind of give yourself a break and play it by ear. You know, if you, if you really don't feel like riding that day, don't ride. If you're starting to feel kind of flat and meh, get on the right, get back on the bike and take it a little bit easy. Uh, but just, just ride to feel good. Kind of listen to your body, let your body lead the way in that recovery process. That's a, that's a huge point. Like if it's almost like you'd undo the work you've done, right? Amber, if you just do all the work and then try to continue on. Mm, Yeah. And you need, you need to absorb. (laughs) That's kind of like a temptation to do though. Right. Because sometimes you're going through these camps and um, sometimes bodies do respond well to stress and you find yourself like at your fastest actually at the end of those blocks. And suddenly you get a few PRs and you get maybe like a, like you're close to a KOM time and you're like, I could rest, but it's just one KOM. And then you end up in, then it's just the addiction hits and then you can't stop chasing them and you end up, you know, undoing all the work that you did. So it's, that is a really good point. Like um, also, man, going back to what we did, this is a common theme here, but understanding stress and how training affects us, not just physically, but when you go through a big training block block like that, you probably also recruit a huge amount of emotional stress uh, as well uh, throughout that process. So it is really important to plan in with a block, not just plan the work, but plan the sort of downtime that you need. Even if that's just like, you know, taking one extra day off of work or something before you return to the typical schedule that you have, that one extra day off after that sort of an event can be really, really helpful. Alex, how did you manage that after your Cape Epic block? Because that was a big block of volume amidst, and you carried on working and still doing everything that you needed to do with your job, everything else like that. So how did you manage that? What was your week like after? Yeah, I'm honestly, uh, Amber and I have talked about this before, but I'm honestly very jealous of her ability to just take a week off the bike. Like, I was like, you can just come back and race. She's like, yeah, um, I would come back and just be so blocked if I took a week off the bike. Um, but I think the mental aspect is big and it's like, I wouldn't downplay the role of Nutella and peanut butter in her result there. You know, like I think there's gotta be some fun in it, you know, like a hundred percent 
like air on the side of easy. But for me, like I take probably a day or two off the bike and then we'd have like an easy week with endurance rides and a spin. Um, after the Cape Epic week, I was actually lucky enough that my brother brought me up to North Star and we did lifts. So it was just like low intensity for like, in terms of like aerobic, like definitely beat up my upper body, but it was just a fun day. Like I just got to ride trails with my brother all day. So it was like, as far as like mental stress, it was like the opposite. Mm -hmm. So, and for me, like you were saying, like you can kind of ride that high for a little while. And I think for me in that recovery week, it takes a bit for my body to be like, Oh sweet. I can recover. Like I'll come into like Tuesday or Wednesday and actually still feel pretty good. And then my body's like, Oh, we're taking it easy. I can recover. And then Thursday it's like, oh crap, like my legs are so heavy. So it's like, I think the big level goals are just like mentally, when are you ready to go again? When are you excited to ride your bike? And I think that's a huge sign across the board and it's figuring out how you get there. I think Amber and I sit pretty opposite ends of the spectrum on how to get there. And there's a whole slew of space in between, right? You could take four days off and then start to ramp it back up. You could take three days off or you could do a day off ride, a day off ride. But I think overarching, it's just, when am I excited to ride my bike? And we've talked about it before. I treat it kind of like the sickness. When you feel good, give it an extra day or two and then start to ramp it back up. So once you're excited to ride your bike, give it that extra like two days and then start to ramp it back up again. Like I just did my first threshold intervals yesterday after the move. And like, I wasn't quite ready, but I was itching to get after it. Like I was so excited to be pushing it again. And I think like my legs will come around pretty fast, but it was just that, like, I was excited to get out the door and get after it. Like, that's what I'm looking for. Like, if I'm not excited to get out the door and get after it, I would probably bump it down to an endurance ride. Yeah. yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good, you've mentioned that a bunch of times too, Amber is wait until it's there, then wait just a touch more and then you'll be able to, to, to make the most of it. Um, Alex, we also have a note down here about uh, like the diligence that you apply to training and applying that to work. Cause that's another side of things too, is we're, it's, it's easy to feel like we're like diligence is necessary to be applied to training. But then with recovery, we kind of like throw out all rules. We throw out all that you know, we kind of just let things happen. And many times type a people, if they just let things happen, they end up happening at an intense level and everything is, you know, we don't end up recovering. And that, yeah. so that's a key point too. For sure. I think it's, it's weird to call it diligence in recovery because it's almost like non-diligence in a way. It's allowing yourself to be lazy, right? Like it's hard for us as athletes because it's, it's the intervals that we feel like we put a lot of work into. But to Amber's point, the adaptation happens in that reverse taper in that week that you're giving your body off. So it's like if you're continuing to pin it and you're, you know, pushing it 20 watts on the recovery week, it's like it may feel good in the moment, but you're not going to adapt to the work. So it's like that, like overshooting your power targets in your recovery week is going to negate all that work you put into that training block or that fake race or that adventure ride. So it's like the goal is to reap those benefits moving forward. So it's like just allowing yourself to, Oh, it's a 60 minute spin. Like, 45 minutes is enough, you know, like, Oh, it's mm -hmm. supposed to be 220 to 240. 220 is good. You know, it's like if anything air on the easy side or downgrading it or taking the day off completely, like I think we're so used to trying to hit everything perfectly that perfect for a recovery week is 
too easy for us sometimes. So it's like, doesn't feel like an accomplishment and we don't feel like we're pushing ourselves. So it's a little more difficult for, especially for athletes like me who are type A. Don't know if anybody saw, but a clear example of was Jen and I were moving. My stuff was all packed probably two weeks before we moved. And Jen, the day before we moved, still had her closet still fully needing to be packed. So, (laughs) yeah, that's how we work. We tend to like obsess over the details, but in some cases we don't. And then we end up finding ourselves putting in too much for sure. So, yeah, allow yourself to be lazy. Now, Chad, there's science to this too, right? In terms of like, Mm looking at actually what needs to happen to your body in order for you to absorb that training stress you just dosed yourself with. Exactly. So first off, I kind of want to just make one observation in that while Alex and Amber seem to be at polar opposite ends of their recovery protocols, I found myself closer to what Alex described earlier in my racing career and now closer to what Amber described later in my, in my racing career. And I'm sure a number of things changed that age, absolutely being one of them, but it might also have been a process of learning too. I figured out that I didn't respond as quickly as I thought I might like to when I used Alex's approach. Uh, Maybe Amber, seven days off the bike, I I can guarantee I would emerge flat. I'd probably benefit from doing it. Those first couple of days would be rough. But my point is I land somewhere in the middle, probably a little more toward Amber's side, but it it changes with time, I suspect. Probably, probably, and this is for me alone, but I'm going to guess that that carries across riders. Okay, and then as, as far as the scientific observations, if you will, I... I'm really just going to kind of touch up or touch on a number of things that (laughs) you guys already talked about. Um, And then I'm also going to revisit sleep. So my my first question would be, how long does it take you to re-regulate your sleep or regulate? I don't don't know. It's it's regular and then you leave it and you come back to it. Is that regulation or re-regulation? I don't know. Mind blown. I've never thought of that. (laughs) Can re-regulation exist? (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But as, as we've talked about, you have to come down from that sympathetic elevation and probably a disturbed, disturbed sleep schedule, because I'm going to guess over the course of this bikepacking trip, you were not getting the best sleep of your life. That, that schedule probably varied. There are all sorts of things that need to realign. Um, in particular, recognize that you know, sleep happens in different stages, and the deep sleep stage of it is about physical recovery. So and in the, the REM sleep or the, the, the dreaming portion of your sleep is about mental recovery. And those two things are going to be out of balance for a while too. Your body's going to probably shift more toward deep sleep and, and physical restoration, and then the, the mental comes. So you might be lacking in one of those two departments for a little while until they start to balance back out. That's not something that's hard for you to pin down either. You're going to feel it. You're going to feel it in your, in your brain. You're going to feel it in your body. So when you reach a point where you're feeling good and you're thinking sharply, then it's probably safe to resume training. Uh, how you do it, you know, that's, again, going to vary from rider to rider. Also consider re-regulation, <laughs> regulation of gut disturbance. This is, this is real, right? So your food intake over the course of that bikepacking trip ideally was comprised of foods that you were familiar with and you knew were going to work for you over the course of something like that. And you probably addressed palate fatigue. And of course, it's not going to be heavy stuff. I don't imagine you were frequenting mini marts. So you probably had all this stuff on you. So it confined you to a particular selection of foods hopefully ones that worked for you. But even if the foods worked for you, I'm going to guess the quantities were out of the ordinary because of all the work you were doing. On top of that, I'm going to guess they were probably low fiber. May not have been, but if I were going on a bikepacking trip, I would go low fiber for sure. So (laughs) pile on top of that, the fact that exercise, the, the stress of exercise affects the gut and in doing so affects your immune response. 
So you got all these things going on. And, and to just to not to make this all about studies, but Alison Clark and Nuria Mock had a, a review where they said, and I quote, diet dramatically modulates the composition of the gut microbiota. And they liken the gut, or they don't like it, they say what it is. It's, it's effectively an endocrine organ. It's a, it, it, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, I'm totally blanking, but, it, but either way, it's, it's responsible for the release of certain, certain hormones, serotonin, dopamine being amongst them. So there's also a hormonal re-regulation that comes with it. All it's back definitely to the same affected, point. I, sorry, it's definitely no. affected by peanut butter and Nutella, right? Like I'm just wondering <laughs> what that did to my brain. <laughs> only, yeah. only positively, only positively. <laughs> the more you have, the better it gets. That has to be the way it is. <laughs> and they have to be mixed like Nutella on its own and peanut butter yeah, on its own. Proper, <laughs> in the right ratio too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, but all this goes back to what I was just saying. You should be feeling good. You should be thinking sharply. Then you can consider whether or not you're going to resume training that day. Um, and then just some minor points, allow the muscle soreness to completely abate. That way, you know, your muscular system is back on track. Get to a point of feeling physically fresh and coordinated emphasis on coordinated. That'll tell you that your neuromuscular system, the communication between your brain and your muscles is back on track. And as Alex touched on, I'm pretty sure Amber said something about this too. Be motivated, feel ready, eager to get back on the bike. That way, you know, you're psychologically realigned. You're ready to hit it and, and, and stay after it. Um, also you have to contemplate the severity of the endeavor, because if this is something you've done numerous times, and this is just another go at it, you're going to be affected very differently than someone who's doing this for a first time. If you're an athlete who logs 20 hours a week training, it's going to be a different experience and a different recovery path than someone who trains eight to 10 hours a week. Mm. So look at your training history. Look at how severely you ran this too. Maybe some days you're just sailing along, other days you're gutting it out up really brutal climbs and then hanging on for dear life down very technical descents. All these things take different tolls. Uh, the impact of age on your rate of recovery, kind of already talked about that, but just recognize that it changes with time. And then what sort of stress are you coming back to? Uh, you might need a longer ramp back in to life to see how the stress of what you just did inflicts itself on the stress of what you have to deal with on a daily basis. So if you know you're coming back to a high stress environment, well, maybe if, you know, if possible, give yourself a little longer run in to that high stress environment or recognize that you're going to feel a little worse over the course of the process of readjusting back into, it, it sounds dramatic, but back into daily life. This was definitely a departure from that. And then finally, for anyone who's considering doing something like this, you got to be forward thinking. Uh, consider how this figures into your training blocks. Consider how it might affect your rebound so that you can get back to training and how, how the, the impact of the, the, these, these events can facilitate or hamper your training progress. I mean, that's a real concern, especially if you're on track for something. This was just a lead up to that something. How could this possibly derail or benefit that something? Yeah. Oh man. We're so like, we're a laughable bunch a lot of the times because we're so good at, at piling on a huge amount of stress. And that doesn't mean, necessarily mean that's a good thing, by the way, we're just good at doing that very thing. And then we're really bad at usually allowing ourselves to actually absorb and, and, and take advantage of all that hard work. So it's fun to play. That's a good final parting note, right? Chad on that is to make sure that you're planning beyond this, this, dosage of stress and how you're going to ideally unless a case unless in the case this is that thing that, that all the work was going toward yep which in that I case i can't recommend taking that monday off before you return to work enough mental health mondays <laughs> totally. oh, so good yeah. just don't have to wake up at a certain time don't have to zoom into any meetings just yeah chill for the day it, it really resets you for 
like that change of environment, that change of stress. Yeah, it gives a, you a transitional period instead of going completely. down and then straight back up. Gives you it smooths it out. Yeah. I was just gonna say there's a case of the Mondays joke in there somewhere, but I'm just not I'm just not on it enough today. To <laughs> <laughs> Let's go into Greg's question, and then we're gonna transfer into some some uh, some rapid fire questions, if you will. He says, "Is there any actual science to back up the positive effects of tens on recovery, especially after cycling?" Thanks so much for everything you do. I'm in the best shape of my life thanks to you all at Trainer Road, and I'm getting faster every day. Good to hear, Greg. Keep it up. Keep working hard. Uh, so uh, tens, we should probably define what that is first. Um, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. But Chad, we, you can you can take this one on. I think you did some research into this. Yeah, so it's low level electrical stimulation, and transcutaneous means it takes place across the skin. Um, it's also termed, and I think these are pretty much synonymous, although they don't really sound like it. Electrical muscle stimulation. So let's just call it EMS because that, that's what it is. We're trying to stimulate the muscle with low voltage electricity. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, short answer, <laughs> nope. It's just, it's, no as science. much as I wanted to return to this topic, having covered it many podcasts back, I thought maybe there's some emergent science and now I can finally get behind this. And, and it, it brought to mind, am I the only one, asking the podcast guests here, am I the only one old enough to remember the X-Files? No, oh, no, I of know. Of course I remember. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. No yeah. comment. Okay, so, so downstairs, <laughs> FBI building, dank little office, Fox Mulder, Dana Scully. Above Fox's desk was a poster that said, I want to believe. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That about, that about sums it up. Yeah, so understand yeah. that my bias on this matter is toward believing. I want this to be real. I have one of these devices. I would love to know that it was doing something for me. Uh, and, I, and I would probably use it. But the fact is, the only real legitimate claims are medical or physical therapy in nature. Um, I, I saw some studies on chronic uh, heart failure and reconditioning uh, patients relative to that, uh, issues with chronic low back pain, stuff like that. So, so there are applications for this. They're legitimate. As far as recovery and performance enhancement, still the science just doesn't back it up. And uh, there was one study which we mentioned the last time we touched on this topic way back in, I think, 2011. It was for a particular product and it had favorable findings, but two of the authors were paid consultants and I'm pretty sure they were part owners in the company, but I'm not sure. Within the study, they promised a follow-up study that was currently in process. It, it was happening right now and it was gonna be the validation study that backed up their findings. Well, that was 2011 and still hasn't surfaced. So I'm gonna guess, you know, the sad fact about research is if it's not sexy, it probably doesn't make publication, right? So I'm gonna guess that that one didn't pan out the way they'd hoped. One quick thing on that, Chad, I hear that a lot from companies where they say, well, we, the first studies, you know, there was just something that we wanted to change about how the first studies happened. So the next studies, they're in the works and they're coming out. And I've heard that with so many products that like, you know, yeah. the real good study is coming out eventually, but just, just know, hang on, make sure that you, yeah, exactly. And make sure you pay attention to who is involved in the study. Mm -hmm. And if it mentions any donors or funders or anything else like that, mm -hmm. uh, make sure you look at that. Um, because that, that will definitely imply, not just imply, but it absolutely states where bias lies. Um, yeah. And they and, have to and, state and, those conflicts of interest. So they'll be there in the paper. Exactly. If it's, if it's published in a reputable journal, there's always a heading exactly. at the end that displays the source of the funding and declarations of any conflicts of interest. 
Yep. So definitely look at those because uh, those can definitely, th- those will give you your grains of salt that you need to keep handy with it. And then hopefully you can find something where if the, you know, the, the, the funding sources and everything else seem as unrelated as possible uh, to, to any sort of product within that space. That's the sort of study you really are after. <laughs> okay. So in addition to what I've mentioned so far, I listened to a podcast the other day, Science of Ultra. I'm not, I don't remember how old it was, but Shauna Housen was on it. And she is a legitimate recovery expert. She's over at the Australian Institute of Sport. Uh, she did her, her uh, PhD dissertation in, if I, if I got it right, recovery relative to cycling. So, I mean, she, she knows from what, what she speaks and it just happens to be exactly what we're talking about here. And she not condescendingly at all, but very dismissively just said, there's no supporting research regarding the efficacy of muscle stimulation for recovery. And and that's it. She moved on. She wasn't even going to dwell on it. It just wasn't something that registered. Um, (laughs) And then last ditch effort, I reached out to one company in particular who will will remain nameless. And they fired back what was very clearly a canned response. It was interesting in a number of ways. And, uh, I want to just like talk on this for a half hour and just laugh a lot, but, <laughs> but I'm going to, I'm going to distill it down to some, some points that I think everyone will enjoy that. Okay. So, the, so the email itself had nine or it had 10 studies related to performance linked studies, PubMed studies below that it had nine studies linked to recovery modalities. And so, so right from the start, I'm, I'm kind of impressed. Oh, wow. They find a heck of a lot more than I did when I've, Doug, what I felt was pretty deep. Below that, another 10 studies and another nine studies. Turns out they're the same ones. They're just double spaced. So the email <laughs> alone looks pretty convincing. It looks like there's a whole, I mean, I'm like scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. It's still going. I'm like, how could I possibly have missed this I'm much information? I'm just not going to click. That's what I'm just not going to even get a click on this. It's so much information. I can't even Yeah, but but two things occurred to me over the course of scanning this and then digging into these. First off, I don't think they expected me to read the abstracts or really to click the links in the first place. They certainly didn't expect me to dig into the studies, have access to research libraries and be able to look at the construction of the studies, not just read the abstracts, which honestly, if they thought I was going to read the abstracts, they probably should have picked some better studies or just omitted a couple because they had either nothing to do with the claims or the findings in the abstracts were unfavorable. So, oh boy. Yeah. And I think my favorite one was the one that pinned low performance and high level of recovery on that demon lactate, which is apparently back in the news. So oh gosh, I, it, 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 was, it was hard to take any of them seriously. Uh, I honestly, I want to go over all nine of them because I read all of them. And uh, again, I want to believe that was my bias entering this and I couldn't support it no matter how hard I try. Yeah. One, one but, quick note on this before we get into your final conclusion points here. Okay. One quick note on this, Chad, we've noticed this already with the Science of Getting Faster podcast. One of the reasons why it's taking us a bit longer to get it out than we thought is many times what we think is a solid study, something really reliable. Once we look into it, we start to, and once we really dissect the thing, we start to realize there's some glaring things being overlooked here or, or omitted. And, and so it is, it's absolutely... It's not exactly the most exciting reading a lot of the time. It's not formatted to be easily digested for sure, but it is really important that if you look at a study, you don't just uh, give it clout because of titles that are in there and because of complex formatting and charts and graphs, but actually read through it and try to make sense of it and 
you can really, uh, I think that it's really important that we do that. Uh, in many cases, you'll see that the abstract many times ends up being just discussing the initial findings. However, when you get into the actual methodologies of what happened throughout the, the test, you can see, oh, well, these findings are actually invalidated because of the processes they used to be able to come to this point or plenty of other things. So we just always like, uh, you know, we, we we really care about science and we really try to adhere ourselves to this and use it for a constant improvement and to find ways to be better. So this is like a passionate point for all of us is to make sure that we're not attaching ourselves to bad science quote, uh, to make sure that we're, you know, on the right page with that. And on that note, if, if that is interesting to you, there was a book that a podcast listener actually sent to me way back, either sent to me or recommended, I think actually sent me a copy of it called rigor mortis. I think it's Richard Harris, although I might be messing that up. It's definitely Harris is the last name, but it's a, it's a pretty concise read on exactly the nature of research and its limitations and where they're trying to steer it and how important scientific rigor is and all that, all that sort of thing. So if you're new to this game, that is a, a good way to get your feet wet. Nice. Solid rec. Okay. Now, so I have basically defamed electrical muscle stimulation to the point where <laughs> I, I don't want to talk anybody out of it. If you're curious, go after it. And here's why. First off, it's one of those things that forces rest on a body. You can, I, I say this, you basically can't do anything while your muscle is twitching involuntarily again and again and again. <laughs> Apparently though, you can drive a car. Which, <laughs> if you've ever had the misfortune of being in a car with someone who's driving, just ask them if you can drive because it is an unpleasant experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, Possibly extremely dangerous and definitely nauseating. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been in that scenario. <laughs> yeah. And then finally, placebo effect, emphasis on the word effect. I mean, if there's an effect there, who cares how it comes about? I mean, save for the fact that you're going to spend a couple, several hundred dollars, depending on which device you go with. If there's an effect, who cares what, what causes it? Placebo effect is real. It's the most reliable effect in all of research science. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely not. It's not fake. That's uh, an important detail. Um, let's get into some rapid fire questions. First from Laura. Ooh, this is a good one, Laura. <clears throat> and Nate's not here, but I assume he'll be listening. So, <clears throat> She says, what is Amber's biggest concern going into Cape Epic? Team name. Team. Bar has been set high. <laughs> it's it's true. really sweating this. Yeah. <laughs> Thunder and Honey is quite the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chad, Chad and Pete have the best team name for sure. So Anything no else in making Nate from. cry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, there we go. Jabs toward Nate. A any other concerns, Amber? What, is, what's your, what are your biggest ones? Uh, she said biggest concern singular. That's it. That's it. Okay. <laughs> we'll stick to the question. <laughs> uh, moving on. Tim's question. He says thoughts on single speed mountain biking being used or being useful training for serious athletes. Alex, we should throw this one to you. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely heard of it for, you know, varying cadence and, you know, building momentum into trails and stuff. But I think we talked about this before just don't shift. Like, I don't feel like you, you need a, a specific bike for it. Like you can turn any bike into a single speed these days with like SRAM ETAP, just take the battery out. There you go. Like I, I, I get it from the standpoint of, of varying cadence and, and reading trails and having momentum, but, um, I've never done it personally. I, I think it's, you know, interesting and fun, but as far as a, a training benefit, I don't see it. I would just rather not shift. I mean, I, I, we go up steep enough stuff anyway that you'd have the varying cadence if you're going mountain biking 
anyway. If you're listening to this and you're a single speeder, I'm sorry that you just threw your phone. Hopefully it didn't break. Um, but <laughs> something to think about with this is Alex is bringing up the objective points with this, right? In the sense that like what you really get with it and the, the, the one, the varying cadence is extremely important. However, single speed forces you to operate kind of beyond a lot of the time what the realm of reasonability is. That's totally not a word, but you know what I mean? Um, but, but it op forces you to operate outside of that in a lot of cases. So it's hard to argue that it becomes productive. Um, and in that case, it, it can actually go far enough to become counterproductive. And, uh, the one thing that it does is it usually forces some pretty strange pedaling techniques when you're at that really low cadence as well, but it forces probably really good pedaling technique and good proper form when you're pedaling at really high cadence, right? So that there are total benefits to it. And yeah, you do have to pick line choice and it goes smooth. So I would say if you feel like those are two outstanding weaknesses where you're like, I just really can't ride at a wide range of cadence and I really just have a hard time carrying momentum through things. And I always pick the wrong lines. You could give it a shot for sure. But I would recommend much more, uh, I think effective is force yourself to operate at different cadences that are reasonable throughout your training and couple that with the sort of work that you'll be doing when you'll be racing. And then the other part of it is work with the skills coach. They're so helpful just to get a second eye on how you're doing. It can just really go a long ways. Um, so, uh, next one is from Jada C. She says, I'd like to hear how Amber and Alex have handled racing at altitude since they live at low elevation. I've heard you discuss altitude plenty of times before, but it's always uh, from the perspective of Chad, Nate, and Jonathan who already live at elevation. It's kind of funny because Chad and I were both like, do we live at elevation? But I guess we do <laughs> relatively speaking, Amber, Alex, I don't know. <clears throat> Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I'm at a whopping six feet above sea level when standing up. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How have, uh, I guess uh, let's go to Amber first. Like how do you manage and how have you managed that throughout your career of going up to elevation and how does that affect? So, uh, I think again, this is one of those things that's a little bit individual. So altitude absolutely has an effect and it has an effect across the board, but the degree to which it's going to affect you is going to be a little bit different depending on well, a variety of factors, but we'll just say that, that there is a range of effect. And I'm definitely somebody uh, who is impacted by elevation pretty significantly. Um, so I've in the past, for example, two of the Gila was always one of the races that I did every year that was at elevation. And I always benefited from doing a couple of weeks of training at altitude, um, not a super high altitude. I wasn't going crazy. I wasn't going up to like Breckenridge or something. In fact, I'd go to Reno and train and that would just be enough of an adaptation for me going into Gila that it would sort of take the edge off, uh, the elevation related layer of suffering that gets added onto everything. And I think the other thing, uh, not everyone has the opportunity to go and acclimate to elevation before they race. So a couple of things that can help with that. And I've definitely done these myself over my career is delaying going to elevation until the very last second. Um, because there is sort of a, a range of time where you're not quite adapted yet, but the adaptations have started to a point where it actually is going to make you feel worse and it's going to be a little more detrimental to your training. So you kind of have two, two good options. One is to, to actually take the time to acclimate. And if you don't have that option, then delaying uh, going to altitude until the very last second is the other one. And then at sea level, CO2 is more of a limiter to your ventilation rate than oxygen is. But when you go to elevation, it's the opposite. And so actually consciously 
And again, this is a matter of degree, so please don't overdo it. Uh, check with your doctor, all of the requisite liability <laughs> caveats here, uh, but hyperventilating slightly. So at sea level, when I'm racing, I'm always trying to slow my breathing, breathe off the carbon dioxide, focus on my exhale. Whereas at, at elevation and altitude, it's actually a little bit more effective to focus on the inhale and breathe at a slightly higher rate than feels necessarily comfortable because oxygen is actually more of a limiter there. So those are two pieces of advice I would say uh, to anybody who's looking to perform at altitude, but maybe doesn't have that option to acclimate ahead of time. How did you do it for nationals, Alex, last year? I mean, six feet above sea level when you're standing, like you said, <laughs> up to basically 9,000 feet is when the rate, where the race started. So, yeah. Um, last year I was lucky enough to do it, I guess, quote unquote, the traditional way. Um, a buddy of mine, Will Foley, let me stay with him for the two weeks leading up to it. Um, I've played around with a couple different things. I've done the altitude tent. Um, I've done the same as Amber show up the day before and brisket for the biscuit. Um, <laughs> and then the ventilation thing, I feel like that works all the time. Like whenever I race at altitude, I sound like a steam train behind people when I'm climbing. Cause it's just like, like I just focus on breathing as quickly as I can. Um, and that's helped me a lot. It also, I feel like gives off that, uh, Chris Froome effect. Cause it's like, nobody knows when you're on your limit, if you're breathing hard the entire time. So, <laughs> nice. so you, you can be fresh or just about to blow and sound exactly the same. So I feel like it messes with people's minds a little bit, which is fun. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, get up there early if you can. I mean, with a full-time job, the tent has been helpful to me. Um, I have one of those little ones that just like goes over your pillow and it's like kind of like a weighted blanket around your chest. And I, I sleep just fine. I used to have one for the whole room, but Jen nixed that one pretty fast. So <laughs> yeah. Did you, have you found that the day before versus two weeks before, which one works better for you? Oh, two weeks before hands down. Cause the day before it's just tricking your body physiologically, like you still don't have the red blood cells, but what happens once you're up there for, I think it's 48 to 72 hours, your body starts to adapt. So you're putting stress on top of stress. It's stressing itself to try to produce those red blood cells, which takes three to 10 days, but you're trying to train on top of that or race on top of that. So when you go 24 hours ahead, you still have that lack of oxygen and your body's not perfect for it but you're not trying to do that at the same time as your body's trying to adapt to the stress around it. Yeah. That's like the, the hard part about this too, Amber, I can assume. And, and Alex, I know I've experienced this when it's meaningful enough for me to be really worried about the effective elevation on my, on my performance. It's hard to show up the day before because in many cases you want to, you know, recon or geez, if it's like the races that you've done, Amber, you know, you've got team ceremonies and you've got all these other things where you have to do it. So that is something to, to take into account. Like if it's a really big event, like a national mountain bike national championship, I don't want to arrive the day before because I want to be able to, even if it's the course doesn't have anything really technical or really difficult, I want to be so comfortable with it that that is a non-factor. And then I just want to be comfortable there as well because showing up the day before and, you know, unpacking and building and it's, it's, it's a lot of stress to, to add on. Amber, when you trained in Reno, that was... I mean, Reno's at about 4,500 feet of elevation. Sorry for not being metric here, but, um, and I assume that you'd be tra training upwards from there, like, you know, up onto climbs in the region. So, uh, somewhere probably around an average elevation of six to 7,000 feet. Mm -hmm. 
Is yeah, that that's right? about right. And Gila is not much more than that. So that actually was really appropriate for those races. And that made a huge difference for me. And I would agree with Alex that the, the better of the options is to be able to acclimate. That's certainly more effective. But if you don't have that option, you just don't have that option. And it's and that's that's where kind of the mental resiliency and mental strength comes in. You just, you run, you brung, right? So you just <laughs> you give it what you got on the day. And if you get really hung up on the fact that like, oh, so-and-so has been acclimating and I haven't, da, 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 forget that noise. Just focus on your race and go do what you got, you know, give it, give it everything you've got. Yeah. That's like a, a Keegan Swenson opinion of altitude is it doesn't exist. It's like birds. It's not real. So, I mean, sure. I guess that we can adopt that for a while. So nah, that, don't, don't listen to that guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's not fast <laughs> he, at all. He spent three months at LA before back in 2017 for Pan Ams. We had, uh, it, I believe it was at 8,500 feet and he has the option to live at altitude and he lived in LA for three months leading up to it. It was just like, Altitude doesn't exist. Go ahead. And I think he got like third or fourth at the race. So yeah, he's yeah. a special creature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually it's funny because we just had a point on this. Sometimes if you take a route and you upload it in Garmin connect and Strava or different profile, different ones, it'll give you different elevation. Um, it'll give you different elevation for those routes, sometimes substantially. So, so I'm just feeding the conspiracy theory. The elevation actually is not real. It's all fake, just like birds <laughs> and everything else uh, that, I don't believe this stuff, by the way. Sorry, people. Um, but anyways, it's fun to joke around. Uh, Marcus's question. I struggle to get my time in zones during sweet spot intervals to be 100% in the sweet spot zone. He says I'm about 30% tempo, 50% sweet spot, 20% threshold during a sweet spot interval. Is my current situation normal? And is it a sign of poor quality? Or is it actually benefiting to get a rough mix of tempo, sweet spot, and threshold? Uh, Chad, do you want to take this one uh, first? Sure. It is what it is that you're only going to be able to regulate power to so tight a range. This is how it's going to fall. And the fact that you're getting 50% in your sweet spot, if you quantify it that closely is, is great. But the fact that the rest of your time is in tempo and threshold, which is what sweet spot is a blend of just kind of spells out what we're after, which is close enough. I mean, you're never going to be first off, physiological adaptations are going to happen between a narrow bandwidth, you know, a four watt range. Uh, so secondly, the body doesn't work that way. We're not machines. We don't, we don't, we don't move that efficiently or consistently over time. So we're looking for all the adaptations that come when you work from roughly here to roughly there. And you're accomplishing that 100% of the time. Yeah. And this is a really good plug to read the workout description and goals for the workouts that you have in trainer road, because a lot of the time you'll see, and coach Chad has written all of these, you'll see that Chad has said, you know, if you can't stick with this, then this is like where you want to sit, or this is the window. And you'll give you those sort of, those sort of, those sort of uh, guidance, which when you're training indoors and you're just on erg mode, that can be really tough, right? Uh, because you know, it's holding you to a specific target, but remember that's what the up and down arrows are for. And that's what being able to change your intensity is for on those days when you don't feel like you quite have it. It's okay. Like that's not a failure at all. Like just turn it down um, and be able to work your way through it. So, and even, even in ergo, you, you, those fl fluctuations are still present. Again, mm -hmm. th there's nothing that our, our muscular system can mimic that is anything like an engine. Not, 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 not that closely anyway. And what are you talking about? My quads are pistons. <laughs> 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 so are mine. Yeah. No, that's true. 
There's, there's a team name somewhere in there, right there. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I just, I want to jump in. Cause I think this is definitely an issue too, for outdoor workouts. So mm-hmm. if you're doing your workouts outside, this can be a real, um, a real challenge. And one of the things I've found that helps with that is don't worry so much about the ceiling of the range, but focus on raising the floor of the range. Cause it's a little bit mentally harder to keep your power up. Let's say on the downhill portion of some rolling mm. terrain than it is to keep your power up on the uphill. And it's real easy to overshoot when you start going uphill. But if mm-hmm. I would, you know, don't worry so much about that, but really focus on lifting the floor of the range so that you're getting less time in tempo and that'll shift it into more time in sweet spot and maybe a little bit more in threshold, but trying to decrease the percentage that you're in tempo, I think is where you want to focus your efforts. It's a perfect plug. Uh, Andy didn't send in a question. He just sent in this note and it's perfectly along those lines, Amber, in the sense of outdoor workouts. He says, just wanted to give a bit of feedback on trainer road outdoor workouts. I don't own a trainer yet and I've been cycling outdoors since April after many years off the bike. I signed up for trainer road after a few weeks of listening to the podcast and I heard that the platform also offers structured outdoor workouts. After three weeks, I'm throwing PRs all over the place and so grateful for the structured training. So kudos, Andy way to go. And, and yeah, that's like a, a, being able to train indoors and outdoors, being able to train with a group, like a bunch of people. If you follow Nate on Instagram, tr.nate, then you can see he always shares which workouts he's doing and he does hundred percent group workouts. So you can join in with him. Uh, if you can fit into the group of 11, you can RSVP now, which is great and share codes, uh, tons of great stuff there. So, um, yeah, it's good to have the options, uh, for sure. Okay, the next one, this is uh, totally, this is not our vein, but we're still going to do it just the same. Um, so I have my picks down. I'm curious to see, cause I only see, I think a couple picks from Chad and then a, a very important correction from Alex, but our TDF picks, Tour de France picks for all the jerseys. Uh, let's go last with the yellow jersey, even though that's first on our list, just cause that's the most interesting one. So for the white jersey, I put Pogachar. And then I'm going to give away my yellow jersey pick because uh, it was a different person. And then you pointed out that that would not be possible. So, um, but who do you have for the white jersey? Is Pogachar everybody's or no? Yeah, I have. I do. Pogachar yeah. for the white jersey. Yeah. I'm sitting this one out. So you guys, you guys take it away. And then polka dot jersey. I have no clue, but Kuznafra looks like he's just having Kuznafra's his got field day. Yeah. yeah I have, have a feeling that, bad. uh, Bahrain Rita's going to crater and Wout Poles is going to go for the polka dot jersey. Mm. That'd be cool. He could do yeah. it too. He doesn't yeah. look to be super sharp just yet, but maybe he'll come into it. Yeah. Yeah. Green jersey. This is a good one. Because cause Sagan doesn't look like the dominant Sagan that you've always seen. <clears throat> Still going to be so let, me, let me first say always. that with the green jersey and the polka dot jersey, I don't they're not really about the best sprinter or the best climber. They're about the opportunist who is the best sprinter or the best climber. So we all recognize that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's why Cosnefois is going to get it. He went after it early and he's going to hang on to it. He's built up enough of a lead that it's pretty discouraging for anyone else to pursue it. Not to say it can't happen though. Um, and then with the green jersey, it's really hard to bet against Sagan because his consistency is so good. I mean, what's he going on? This will be his eighth? Yeah, I think it? it'll be his eighth. Yeah. It's ridiculous. But... I don't think even relative to Sagan and with consistency being the key player that it is, I really think Trenton's probably got a better crack at it as much as I'd like to see Bennett or, and I'd like credit. This was in here before yesterday's sprint finish. Watt Van Aert. It's true. It was, it was those guys could do it if they were off the leash, but I don't think Bennett can get over the climbs. And I don't think Wout is, 
he, he's not going to be given that much of a that much freedom to pursue this sort of thing. So he's restricted. He's off the table. Yeah. Trenton, however, is not. And his CCC team, who was backing what Ilner Zakarin, who's already yeah. nine minutes down, maybe more after today, they're all off the leash. So I, I, I see Trenton being a big threat to the green jersey. Another point. So my heart wants Greg Van Avermet to get it because I've really enjoyed how he's been racing this year and the tour. It's been fun to watch. Um, and maybe he always does that in grand tours though. You find him in breakaways. It seems like more commonly than those big spring classics names. And he's, you know, an aggressive racer, but it, seeing that they're both on the same team, um, you know, they at the very least have two really strong people that they can use to, to get it done, whether it's with GVA or Trenton, but I think GVA is pretty far down on the points. So it'd be really tough for him to do it. Mm. All right. Yellow Jersey. <clears throat> last one. Should I go first? You yeah. Go. All right. Uh, my, um, my pick is Bernal and it's because I think that, uh, and I hope that this is right, that, and I would think that they would do this, but I know that Sky or sorry, Ineos, Ineos Grenadiers now, I know they haven't looked as dominant as they once were, but I have a feeling they're coming in a bit undercooked intentionally. So I would only hope so, but, um, such a busy, <laughs> Amber, you keep smirking, but you're not going to contribute. It's driving me nuts, <laughs> but I, he's my pick. Um, yeah, we'll see. I'm going to go with Roglic just because Sepp Koos is going to boss the Peloton around all these three weeks. I hope so. Yeah, I'm on the same page. I, I don't see how Roglic can can lose it. He's too formidable. He's shown that he can stand up for, for three straight weeks. He's bringing good fitness into it. Could mean he burns out early, but I don't think so. I think yeah. uh, everyone else who's warming up are going to be too far behind. I think the, the other point too, and I know that this is silly, and Amber, you're probably going to like shake your head at this, but <laughs> like, it's just because you once raced in the pro Peloton, but sometimes you get these like little signs and you see something and you're just really blown away. And that was when Roglic won that stage when he went away from the group. My goodness gracious. It was like he, he, he was like, he was on a turbo Levo. It was just like turned on the gas. And then he just like rolled away from everybody. And it looked rather like effortless, um, compared to, and everybody else was clearly under a whole lot of hard workload and distress. And he was just like, boom, I'll just go now. So yeah, but that's the last time you saw someone finishing stages strong, like that was the 2018 Giro with Yates. If, yep, exactly. If, Remember how dominant but, he looked then? So, But what, what was Yates' team behind him? I mean, look at Jumbo Visma and what they still bring to the table. They're rollers, yep. they're climbers. I mean, they are a strong, strong team. So they're going to do a good job of protecting Roglic. Yeah, so much of what Roglic is, or so much of Roglic's performance is, you know, down to that. And having uh, having the final athlete be Sepp Cusp in front of you too. Sepp's yeah. just steadiness and poker face and calm. I, I assume that it's not just an outside appearance thing, but also he's probably a pretty, uh, kind of like a rock. And that would be really important. I'm sure Amber was a rock for plenty of her athletes as well. well so. and, unless we forget who else he has in the mountains, but Tom Dumoulin. I mean, they've, they've got so many cards left to play. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And he's won a grand tour before, so he has that experience. He knows what it's like to lead a team. Yep. And re reportedly, I, I heard this through grapevines uh, of zero personal connection whatsoever, but uh, reportedly Wout's climbing pre-tour at a camp was on par with Roglic's climbing in terms of like the actual numbers behind their performance. So, I mean, man, what a, what a deep team, huh? So and it's exciting I to watch. it after stage four. I mean, Wout did what a three K pull up that last climb, and yeah. he's like he's not a tiny climber. He's, he's, he's pumping boy. probably like up to five hundred watts for that whole time, like just bossing yeah. the peloton around. They they just have so much strength and depth on that team that I, I think it's hard hard to compete with. 
Yep. Yeah. It'll be exciting to watch. And I'm grateful that, uh, that racing is happening on the entertainment side of things and I hope it can continue to be safe. So fingers crossed. Okay. Um, this next one, I'm totally going to butcher your name. I am so sorry, but I think it's Jean Tadas, I believe is how you pronounce the name, but I could be totally wrong. Uh, it says, hello, trainer road, five stars on the podcast. You really motivate me to keep cycling. I'm an Olympic distance triathlete trying to get good, but, fa- but failing year after year because of quarantine and running related injuries this year has been particularly bad. And I decided to try out some road, ra- some road cycling races. One thing I noticed during a race today, it's hillier than I'm used to. And in hindsight, I used to do this in triathlon, especially with swimming is that I'm just unable to suffer. The moment it gets tougher than I'm used to handling, I start going easier. So my question would be, do you have any tips or strategies or how I can improve this? I absolutely love your workouts and I love riding alone for some reason, but some group rides would be helpful or would some group rides be helpful in this situation? Riding from Lithuania and thank you for the podcast and app. So first of all, thanks for writing in on this. I think this is a hugely relatable topic that we don't talk a a whole lot about because it's hard to measure. Like, Mm -hmm. how can I measure your ability to suffer relative to my ability to suffer? That's really hard. It's impossible, really, to be able to measure that sort of a thing. Um, One thing that just, and we're just going to kind of go off on this one here and and jive off this one. But one thing that I, I, you come to mind, Amber, on this one, and you've actually influenced a whole lot of my internal dialogue uh, in how I go about, instead of, um, instead of negatively critiquing myself in during times, it's always thinking of how can I lift myself up rather than how can I break myself down? So then hopefully I can somehow become what I need to be rather. Why don't I just lift myself up to what I need to be? Mm-hmm. That's one thing that I I've found, at least for me has really actually helped me dig a little bit deeper is by erring on the side of belief rather than doubt in myself. But uh, what are your thoughts on this Amber? Yeah, I, you know, there's no one path to getting there and to learning how to suffer. Uh, but a couple of things come to mind and, you know, following on what you said, Jonathan, I think incrementally, an incremental approach is really relevant here. So uh, kind of like where if you're in the race and you end up at the back of the peloton, then you look all the way at the front and think there's no way I'll ever get up there, you know, breaking it down into smaller size chunks and and not so much, this is too hard for me, but looking at it more like, could I give a little bit more? like just a little bit, doesn't have to be much. Could I just add a touch more pressure on the pedals? And could I handle that? Probably. Or maybe it's something like, could I make it up to that signpost up the road? Yeah, I could probably do that and not fall off my bike. Okay. Now you get to that signpost. Can you make it to the next one? I could probably do that. And then breaking it down into little chunks like that. So looking to see opportunities where you can push just a little bit more or hang on just a little bit longer. And then oftentimes what will happen with that is that you'll probably surprise yourself and you'll help, you'll end up sort of breaking down some potentially long held beliefs about what you can or cannot do and what you can or what you are or are not capable of doing. Um, and I think it's those belief systems that really are the crux of this. So a lot of this is mental. Some of it is physical limitation for sure. But if you really feel like you're not actually struggling that much, or you really feel like you could struggle, you could, I don't know, do more than you are in the races, then chances are there is a little something more that there's more in the tank there than what you're, what you're actually getting out of it. Um, so the, the positive, the positivity component of this is important, but also benchmarking. So I told the story earlier of when I first went over and did that block in Europe, that was 
I never imagined that racing could be that hard. I mean, I thought, I mean, I, I thought I was this young hotshot, just got my pro contract. Like I know bike racing, I know how to suffer. And then I got over there and was like, wow, I had no idea how deep the deep end is. And, <laughs> and I think those benchmarks are really important. And so to your point, that might be, that might look like going and doing a group ride and just saying, you know, can I hang on? How long can I hang on? Or just looking to see how fast people go up a hill. That's one of the things I love about competition is it's one of those arenas where you have an opportunity to discover a limit or discover a depth that you didn't know that you already had. And sometimes it takes an external stimulus to help you discover that new benchmark of what really is comfortable or uncomfortable. So opening yourselves to yourself to those opportunities, maybe looking for more accessible opportunities to just nudge that benchmark a little bit further. Like I said, it doesn't have to be a revolutionary epiphany all in one day, but that th this is something that you can work on in every single workout, just little bits at a time. Mm. The, uh, this is something that I've personally found that if I have less time suffering recently, then it's more difficult for me to manage it. Like I can get into a routine with it almost and get better at it. And just like training and anything else, uh, like, you know, as you train more often, many times, you know, you get better. And this is one of the things that I find I get better at. I don't know if you've noticed that chat or, I mean, thinking of also like your racing career, like you, you really did well in criteriums in particular, like really difficult, hard races. And many times like a criterium, unlike a time trial in the sense that it really comes down to like physical capacity and being able to execute to that. But many times a criterium is very much a game of wits and kind of a game of focus and mm -hmm. who says quit first. Did you, did you find, cause you were successful at that level. So did you find that you were better in any particular way with this? Uh, well, Jing Tadas, I'm going to distill this down for you. What rhymes with suffer? Tougher. It's that simple. <laughs> you you got to get tougher, buddy. That's it. And, and, and there are a few ways to do that. Uh, I always talk VO2 max intervals and, and I'm fond of them for a number of reasons, but one of them is how tough they make you. Mm. Because when you can push that minute of suffering to 90 seconds to two minutes and get up to three minutes and endure that last minute, rest and do it again and again and again, who cares what's happening to your fitness? You're getting tougher. You're showing yourself, I can work this hard and I can do it again and again and again. And when you get out in a race and you're subjected to, and a criterium is a good example of this, these repeat efforts that don't give you quite enough time to recover, but now we're going again and I either hang on or die. And you, and you find out I can do this. It instills a, a sense of belief in yourself that, that I think carries farther than any fitness gain you're ever going to achieve. Mm. So in, in tandem with that is ride with faster riders. We've already touched on this. Amber basically did it in Europe for ho however long she got her butt handed to her routinely. <laughs> exactly. But what happened? She got faster. Her, her, her tolerance for suffering, her toughness grew and grew and grew. She came back and was like, Hey guys, when do we start racing? So mm -hmm. that ride with faster riders. And then finally get older. And really that's synonymous with just gain experience. So as you age, you will become a tougher rider. I can still hang in some races where the numbers do not favor me. I should not be in there. I should not be contesting the final sprint, but I find a way to get there. And it's because of experience. I know this only lasts for so long. I know I can hurt this bad and I can probably hurt more. So I've learned a lot of things that get me to that line. And ideally, and sometimes it happens in a really prime position such that I can actually contest a finish. 
Yeah. Alex, you're racing. So at the high level or the top level of mountain bike racing here in the United States and at the international level and in the United States here right now, we have one of like the, it's hard to compare generation to generation, but we have a very competitive generation right now. And the tough part about mountain biking is the attacks come, but there is no rest in between because of the terrain. Right. And there's no opportunity to shelter yourself and to kind of recover. So how have you, or what, what, what do you do to make yourself hang on a little bit more or, or, or just, you know, be tougher? Yeah. I mean, I echo a lot of what Amber said in terms of like, I think having a positive outlook to the race really helps like more of seeing it as an opportunity, like not so much like, ah, oh, I can't hang on like that negative self-talk, like turn it into like, oh, this is an opportunity for me to work on this in the future. And you know, like, this is where my weaknesses lie. Like I can't wait to train this and get better. But like in the moment, I try to be very present in my intervals. Like how much does this, like to Chad's point, this VO2 interval hurt and bring that to the race. So it's like, no, this is nothing. Like it may feel like more because you're, and we talked about this in the last podcast, but because you're not in control, it adds a whole another level of like suffering. And there's a lot going on that, you know, you're very heightened when you're racing. So like, if you can check in and be like, no, nah, I've done this before in a controlled environment and transfer that to the race, be like, no, I've done this before. I can do this. Like, this is just what I trained for. And that's, we trained to race, we trained for adaptations. So just kind of bringing that feeling and that check-in from the training to racing, then you can just be like, no, this is just another training day. There's like a, the, the princess bride line that I think of with this one where he says life is pain. Um, and this is, <laughs> but like that, that's honestly a bit of my perspective on this. So like when I first started, so like, uh, when I grew up, I, I, I played soccer and did like those sort of things. And then when I raced, started racing motocross, that was the first time when I was like, why does sport have to hurt so much? Cause that is such a physically just exhausting sport. Um, it's, it's like downhill mountain biking, but then you have something that's trying to pull away from you. That's extremely powerful all the time. So you're trying to hold on to that. And then it's just really dynamic. And I remember just being so broken down by how hard it was. And I remember even getting to one point with racing where I was like, this just hurts so much. I don't want to do this. Like I, I I'm tired of it. And, and I remember that then like ski racing, the same thing. When I started ski racing, it was like, my legs are, are exploding as I go down this run. This is so hard. And, and maybe to your point, Chad, like, like what you said with experience, but life is also really hard. Like there is a certain element of suffering to life. And, and I actually look at bike racing as a metaphor for that. And that's all it is. And riding my bike is a metaphor for that. So I kind of look at all of these things as opportunities to become tougher all the time to, to elevate my ability to be able to endure something. And so that's why like that point really resonates with me, Alex, when you say, take the suffering that you have during your training and then take it with confidence and bring it to the race. And if you're following a structured plan that is really pushing your limits, you get tougher. You don't have a choice. It's really hard, but you, you do it in an incremental way, step-by-step, like Amber said, that really makes you to get to the point where suddenly you look back and you're like, Hey, I can do this. And man, it sure helps in life too. Cause I go through really hard things and I'm like, look, I know this may seem to the silly to the rest of the world. So I won't say it out loud, but even though I'm saying it out loud on a massive <laughs> podcast right now, but when I'm going through something, I'm like, I just did really hard VO two intervals. I got this. Like, and, and it's, <laughs> it's something that's like small and silly probably to me personally, but it's a lot of suffering. 
Um, but the final point that I would just make and is reiterating once again, it's very easy to fall out of that habit, like, and, and to become deconditioned in that regard. And, and, and it's, so I, I do think that it's something that you have to anticipate and you have to build for. And if you can make sure that you're in that routine, it makes it a whole lot easier to endure those storms, you know? Yeah. I, I, I do think there's an element of training your brain. We've talked about the brain as, as being part of what limits us in terms of performance. And as I'll take that example of my first time going and racing in Europe, I got through weeks and weeks and weeks of back-to-back stage races where I literally thought like, there were, I don't know, 60, 70, a hundred moments in every single stage where I was like, this is it. This is my limit. I'm done. <laughs> I got nothing left. And then whoop, five minutes later, I'm back there. Wait, I survived the last five minutes. Oh wait, no, this is it. Now this is really it. And I mean, <laughs> yeah. literally every day for weeks. Um, and, and I think that, so what happened was some element of my central nervous system, some element of my brain expanded its definition of what constituted a threat right? Mm -hmm. So what I thought was a threat or a limiter actually changed. And so my brain was able to say like, oh, this thing that I thought was really where I needed to rein you in is actually okay. And we actually have more of a range to work with here than we thought. So part of it is training your brain. And I also just want to reiterate something that I found to be really important is when we talk about toughness and we talk about pushing yourself, it's not about forcing yourself over and over and over again, all of the time. It's about finding a way to be your own ally in those dark moments. So it's not just, oh, you have to do the hard thing no matter what. It's, hey, let's think about this. You know, what's coming up for you right now? What is the thing that's scaring you about this? What are you worried about, you know, might happen? And then if you can figure out kind of what those little mental, emotional trapdoors are for yourself, you can then be, again, your own best ally in those moments. And you can anticipate those moments and think, okay, you know what? there's a climb coming up. I know that this is one of those places where I get really worried about my ability to stay with the group. So I'm going to start using a mantra and keep my mind out of that negative trench, you know? And so maybe your mantra is, um, just for today, I'm a climber, or maybe your mantra is something silly, like bring it on or looking around at everybody around you. Who's really, you know, maybe they're putting the hurt on you, but you can think to yourself, man, is this all you got? Give me more, you know, something funny to turn it on its head, but in a way that's not you're not fighting against yourself. You're working with your brain. You're working with your body. You're working with those mechanisms that are uh, wired to help you survive. So you're not fighting the system. You actually work with it. And that's a much more effective long-term path to getting mentally tough. There's a playlist to mountain biking. It's very hard to read someone from the back. So, (laughs) you, you know, like, you may be suffering, but they may have only two seconds left in them. And if you drop in those two seconds, man, the endorphin release of dropping someone, like you just gave them another 15 seconds. So it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's a game of like, who can hang on more? Like mm-hmm. you, you don't know how hard they're pushing. Like they're just playing the game. Like this happens all the time when Daniel and I are training, it's like, I'll sit on his wheel and I feel like I'm just about to die. And then he'll just like pull off. And it's like, you don't know when someone's just about to, to crater. So try to push yeah. into that limit. And, and like Amber said, make it a game. Like, Oh, I can do one more second. I can do two more seconds. Like I can get to the top of this climb. I totally lied. There are two more points I want to make. Number one, don't make other people stronger than they might be in your head. <clears throat> That's like the way I've <clears throat> thought of that is, and, and this is even hard in a lot of cases, if you're new to like cycling and 
you have these mentors and these athletes and suddenly you're actually able to kind of compete with them and but you kind of hold them on a different level and yeah. i'm sure alex you've faced that when you go over and suddenly you're like lining up and there's yaroslav kolavi or something and i had like, this Whoa. with todd wells when i was coming up in u.s mountain bike and i put him up on a pedestal like dude was my hero um mm. so it's just like when i got to race with him and i could i think the first time i ever competed against him was 2016 nationals like i was actually on his level and i was racing with him it was just like i had to remind myself like i'm a competitor too like He's mm-hmm. just a human, you know, it's like I had him cause he like, he was my childhood hero. So. Yeah. Yeah. So don't build them up to be more than they are. Let them be what they are. It's just build yourself up to be more than, than what you are. And also the final point, look back on history. You've repeatedly proven that you're stronger than you think you are every mm-hmm. single time that you did those workouts month after month, year after year. So why in the world would you ignore history, right? Like, <laughs> like the fact is it's documented. You've done hard things before, so you can do more. Um, and you've shown that you can do more the whole time. So uh, let's get into just a few live questions. And, and, and firstly, thank you everybody for joining us in the live chat. We've got some live questions that we'll get to. We don't have much time, so we'll just do a handful. Uh, but if you're watching this, please give us a thumbs up right now. That'll help. More cyclists will be able to find it that way and get faster. There we are. And then also go to trainerroad.com and check it out. Send your friends to trainerroad.com, share this podcast, do all that stuff. Uh, this is not an advertising podcast. We don't, we deny advertisers all the time and we don't charge for it because we don't want it to be anything like that. But at the same time, all of this does help us make more people faster. If you go to trainerroad.com, so please do it share with friends. Okay. Um, next point. Okay. Uh, this one is from Norman. He says, I wake up and ride in the morning, dad life, and my RPE has been very high with a new earlier wake-up schedule. Any tips on how to survive this period while my body adjusts? I'll, I'll uh, take this since this is my life. Probably all of ours. <laughs> but um, as much as I hate this term, Norman, it, it pithily encapsulates everything I want to convey here. Embrace the suck. It, it's just it's a period of time that it's going to be uncomfortable and you're going to get past it, but there will be a transition. And there are certain things working against you, but none of them are going to prevent you from doing everything you need to do at this earlier time of day. Mm. You've been yeah. doing this recently, right, Alex? Switching to earlier morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been doing early morning just to get a, a cooler temperature. And, and with the fires going in California, it seems to be the, the winds are in such a schedule that early morning is, is pretty good for AQI. I was going to say, kind of like we discussed earlier, you're shifting your circadian rhythm. So waking up may be harder as you adjust to it. Mm-hmm. But also I think something that people fall into is when they do early morning workouts, they put their meal closer to their workout because mm-hmm. then they don't have to wake up as early. So, I mean, I'm up at five for a seven thirty workout so that I can have two hours to digest my food. Um, I think that might be something they're missing. If they're used to working out at, at lunchtime, then they're eating at 10, you know, and working out at 12. So that could help have an effect on RP as well. Good point. Uh, the last one that we'll address is going to be from Rostin and says, what do you all think, uh, or what do you all recommend for openers for my NICA race this Saturday? For those that don't know, NICA is national interscholastic cycling association. So it's the middle school and high school mountain bike league here in, in the United States. And it's amazing. And it's so many kids are on bikes because of it. So, uh, what do you th- uh, recommend for openers on the race? I was thinking about doing three or four 15 to 30 second sprints after I pre-ride the course tomorrow. I do two laps. So two lap race, probably somewhere around a half hour, I would assume in most cases is usually what you'd see for like a, a Nike event like that. Um, openers. Amber, what did you do for openers uh, in your career? 
I tried a bunch of stuff. Um, I think from just like a straight up physiological perspective, all you really need is to get to a point of sort of elevating your ventilation rate and getting vasodilated, which is the the warming up. And vasodilated is just your blood vessels opening up and you're perfusing your muscles with blood and, and everything's kind of, it's humming, it's ready to go. Um, but there's a lot of mental component to this too. So uh, people find that they'll, they'll have a routine that works really well for them. And that's the thing that they stick to. And, you know, some of that is, some of that's mental, some of it's emotional, some of it might be placebo, some of it might be physiological. Um, You don't need to stress too much about it because, you know, it's as long as you're just moving your body and you're getting vasodilated, that's going to be enough. But some people are really religious about like, they want to touch certain systems. Like I, I, I definitely need to get my self into the VO2 max zone, or I really need to get myself into sweet spot for such and such amount of time. Um, all of that is, that's, that's all great. I think the main thing is getting your system primed and then not overdoing it. So finding anywhere in that range is going to work. And as long as you're in that range, don't stress about it. Yeah. One point on this, it says the, the race will take him about an hour, um, in this case. So, um, so typical XC race sort of a thing. Sorry, Alex to interrupt. No, I think Alex has some good thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, uh, exactly what Amber said. Um, I wouldn't do them as sprints necessarily. Um, that's an easy way to do too much. I normally do, uh, about an hour, an hour and a half on the course with four 30 second efforts. They're just above threshold. So for like, say your threshold's 300, I would do them at like 330 or something close to that or, or like a RPE that's just higher than what you could hold for about an hour just so it's really just about touching on those systems and getting everything primed for the next day. Um, and I always like to do it on like an important climb or an important section in a single track so that you can see that section of trail at speed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good tip. I've always found that in terms of openers the day before, I like doing something that gradually ramps me up and to the point where I, I like you said, Amber, the ventilation rate's like, whoa, it's high. I usually follow like basin is a workout that I do, but I do the minus three version of that. Um, and that's something that I do usually the day before. Um, and it's separate than a warm up. And a warm up actually, though, is like effectively the same thing in the sense that I just try to. And I give myself some time. You can Google Ask a Cycling Coach podcast warm up. We've discussed it at length many times, but um, I just try to follow something that gradually ramps me up to the point where my breathing rate is there. Usually ends up looking like spending one to two minutes uh, and in 20 watt increments. And I start out at like 200 watts and then I just work my way up. Uh, 200 watts would be like 70% of threshold, uh, a little less, like 65% of threshold. And I just do, 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 set my way up. And then usually I get to VO2 sort of area. And at that point I pull the plug um, because it's enough. And yeah, I just, I misread the question. I was thinking about warming up pre-race specifically. So that's what my comments were kind of oriented towards as far as openers the day before. I still would, I still would caution against doing too much. Um, sprints can be really nice as long as you keep them aerobic. So one of the things that worked really well for me for openers was super, super high cadence efforts, but extremely low resistance. So get into the absolute easiest gear. And then maybe if I'm going to do, I might do like a 15 or 30 second sprint, but really it's a hundred percent about cadence, not worrying about power output and really super light resistance. So it's just about spinning up and activating that neuromuscular coordination without loading the legs. A coordination part is huge, uh, for that sort of a thing. It's what makes you feel race ready in a lot of ways, right? Like that's like the, uh, that's what makes you feel like you're feeling sprightly and ready to go. So it makes you feel like the blade is sharp. 
Yes, exactly. So good luck, Rostin, in your Nike race and good luck to anybody that has any sort of event, even if it's a silly solo stage race. Hopefully this taught you how to suffer better. Hopefully this gave you insight on sleep and tons of other stuff like elevation. Uh, it's been a great podcast episode. Thanks, Alex, for joining us on this one. Uh, and we're ex excited to have you back soon. Remember, everybody can see, if you turn, go on YouTube, you can see Instagram handles and everything else for the, the host. So then you can see where to find Alex and all of us and get in touch with us there, head over to trainerroad.com, subscribe to this podcast, subscribe to the blog, all the different content we put out. It's all awesome. And we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks everybody. Thanks Bye, everybody. Everyone.